Bienvenue à Looking for the Ocean en nous regardant tout ce que Pixar a jamais fait. C'est à dire des longs métrages, des courts métrages, des démos techniques, etc. Je suis Mark Young et comme toujours, je suis rejoint par Danny Vincent. Et avec nous aujourd'hui, c'est Jay Salahi. <laughs> Wonderful. It's normally not in French, in case you don't get the bit, Jay. <laughs> I get the theme. That's impressive. I mean, you guys could have insulted uh, me and I wouldn't know, but it sounded nice. I, I like how we can never find what translate. we can never find out what tech demos means in another language. <laughs> Just that, that that phrase does not exist. I like having English. that though, because then you know it's the intro. So hey, Jay, um it's so good to have you here. I'm very excited that you're on. I know you were you knew Danny from Wise and before then. I wonder if you could give us a brief introduction of yourself, what you're about, what you've been up to. Well, first off, thanks for having me on. Um, my name is Jay Salahi, as you just said, in French, but um, I know Danny for a few years now. We've been online friends for probably like six, seven years, maybe longer. Probably longer. I, oh, so a, a I, I joined that site when around when Skyfall came out, so, so probably in about 10 years. Then, but I've seen you in person, too. You've come here and we've hung out before. Yes. We've also done That's a podcast or two before. So, but I am an independent filmmaker living in North Hollywood. I directed a twelve thousand dollar feature film, Northwood Pie. It's a little coming of age stoner rom com uh, in a pizza place that I grew up across the street from. It's streaming on Amazon and Tubi and all that stuff. And it got ninety three ninety three percent on Tomatoes and worked out. And I don't know. It was kind of one of those things that you dream of doing when you're in high school and like in college. And you just kind of say you got to go for it. And I went for it and it worked out. So I just encourage everyone to go do that. And then to pay the bills because I'm not quite, you know, living large as a film director or anything yet. Yeah. Um, I work as an assistant at a commercial production company and we do a lot of ads for oh, that's perfect. Um, like E and we do ads for um, CBS, uh, All Access or with the Paramount Plus now. And we do all the ads for NBC and stuff. So it's fun and I get to be around cameras and work in that industry a bit and Right now, I'm just trying to uh, prepare the next movie. I want to ask you so many questions, but I don't want to make it all about like interrogating you about your life. But <laughs> do you see do you see yourself in the future making more things like Northwood Pie, or doing more commercial work, or like what's your track, imagined track? I'm only interested really in making movies. I'm not really interested in commercials and other stuff. That stuff will come. Obviously, if you direct movies or Hollywood films, you need to pay the bills in between. And I'm interested in doing that stuff, but it's not the kind of path I took. A lot of people, everyone I know kind of does commercials and music videos and they kind of wait for someone to say, hey, you've done a great music video and you've done a great little spec commercial and you've done a couple short films, now do a feature film. And I didn't go to film school and I didn't go to college. I went to a junior college for a little bit and I dropped out and just moved here. And I just wrote a movie and made a movie. And that was kind of the goal. I just wanted to skip ahead. I thought everyone's waiting for permission when you can just go out and do it and you'll learn so much more because making a movie it's completely different, right? It's entertaining someone for three minutes or five minutes or 30 seconds is completely different than entertaining someone for 70, 80, 90 minutes or two hours. So I kind of just swung for that fence and it worked out. The movie came out good and I've done another short film since then, just I'm finishing up another short film and then trying to prep the next movie. And the goal for now is I just turned 30. So at least until I'm 40, my goal is to try to make at least three more feature films, probably all going to be genre. So they're more marketable and selling. And then hopefully by 40, with three more films, if they're all as good as Northwood Pie, eventually someone's going to call and just say, hey, do you want to make Annabelle 29? And then I'm going to say yes, and then hopefully I don't screw it up, and then 
Yeah, and then 20 years later, I got a lazy river in my backyard, hopefully. That's that's pretty much my plan and <laughs> my dream. Here's the thing about Annabelle 29 is that at that point, you can't really screw it. It's going to make money, right? So, so you can't really screw it up that bad. <laughs> Annabelle's going to always make some money. You know, as long as it's better than, like, as long as it's mid, mid Annabelle, it's okay, right? I just can't make one of the worst Annabelle. Exactly. You know? It can be the 10th best Annabelle, but as long as it's not bottom, I'm okay. I remember I went to a repertory screening of the first one during the pandemic. So I, de- I was like, oh, I have A-list still, and it's still going, and it's playing. So I've never seen this one, so might as well. Was this, like, when Birds of Prey was coming out, or was this, like... No, this was... Birds of Prey came out pre-pandemic, like, a month before the pandemic. This was, like, well, Halloween it, like, came 20- out, and then the pandemic started, so I'm wondering well, this if was, like, was Halloween like, the last thing you saw before the pandemic, no. or if you went out in the middle the of The last thing I saw before the pandemic... I, I have two answers, because I saw Roma at... The Music Box, which is my actual last answer, but that's not, like, a new movie. That was, like, you know, they were showing an old print they had of Roma. I remember going into it being like, oh, COVID's probably not going to happen. Coming out, like, Tom Hanks has COVID and the NBA is canceled? What? It all went down while I was watching Roma. But I don't really count it as my last movie before COVID um, because it was, you know, a movie that was just screening. Uh, my last new movie before COVID was the Forgotten... Well, it was kind of dumped by Fox Searchlight anyway at the time. But Wendy, the Peter Pan live action movie that released in February 2020, that's from the director of Beasts of the Southern Wild. It, it has like a 38% Raw on Tomatoes, but um, I have gave it a 4.5 on Letterboxd, which I know to you doesn't really mean much because Jay and I get in a lot of disagreements about my rating system, but I really enjoyed Wendy. Speaking like, of films before um, the pandemic, keeping in theme though, the last movie I saw before the pandemic hit in theaters was, of course, Onward. A forgotten Pixar movie. <laughs> I think. Are you an on- Onward fan? Um, I am kind of an Onward fan. I mean, it's a fine, normal. I don't use that term, but you know, average, you know, solid Pixar family film. I mean, probably for them, it's a lower tier film, but compared to like average animated films that come out for children, it's still in the upper echelon of what I would want to watch and plan on watching. But the ending, yeah. for me, and not going into too much and derailing the thing, but like the ending actually relates very similar to my family and how like some people who've passed and the way my family met up and like my sister's never met her father. And there's some things like that. So that the ending like really is like similar to my life in a way. And it really kind of hit me in a way Mark, that I was have like, you wow. seen Onward? No, I haven't, but no, that's spoiler. Sorry. I thought the Pixar about podcast about guys would know. I, so. I actually like spoilers. I'm a, our, our dynamic that is, way. is that yeah. I am the Pixar geek and I'm the person dragging Mark along. Oh, okay. No, I'm kidding. But that is that's kind sort of, of our dynamic. <laughs> sometimes I like it. Sometimes I'm like, sometimes you're in a grouchy mood. Sometimes I am. I don't know. I'm usually Jay, in the grouchy mood other... when we cover non Pixar movies. <laughs> I would. That's I mean, I feel like I'd rather talk about a live action film. It's weird watching Pixar film, like jumping into this, like, they're almost too perfect. It's hard to grade because there's so many things. Because, you know, you, they say the editing is the last pass of a film, right? The last script edit in a way. But mm-hmm. because these movies have so much money, not every animated film can do this, but they have so much money behind them and so much, you know, uh, talent and people that they rewrite constantly. And they can constantly, it's like when you're rewriting a script, you can always go through, like when I'm writing my script right now, and you add another layer to it. You just add every another detail, every pass. Yeah. They're able to do that or at the last second say, oh my God. Basically, a thousand times a director when he watches the stuff, a thousand of his things were, oh, I wish we were two inches to the left. Or, oh, I wish I just did this. They're able to fix a lot of those if they have the time and money. So the movies come out, especially the Pixar films, pretty perfect, like in a way, from a technical standpoint, that it's like, I, I agree with all the cuts. You know, I'm never, it's not choppy editing. You know, the, the, yeah. the, the production design is always perfect. There's always thought to it. The music, I mean, everything is made and the craft is so well. It's almost hard to compare and contrast to live action and other things because... 
it's just so perfect in a way. And I, that's just a praise kind of for Pixar in general, but some of the high quality animated films, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, something that can actually make you worse because you can over, I mean, attack your movie and overdo it, but they found a way to kind of, I think, just chisel away and streamline everything properly. And well, I do think, especially with something like Ratatouille, you see, especially because it was like taken over by Brad Bird after uh, Jan Pinkhava started it, you can kind of see some of the seams, I think. We might talk about this later with the script, but it's interesting. I agree, actually. I I think Ratatouille, you see a little more seams than others. It's like, yeah, but we'll talk about that later. We're going to skip life updates because I think we've, we've got you. We got you, right? Unless... You want to give us a life update, but I think you did already. Um, oh, life yeah. update for the viewers. Um, my hand is broken. How about that? My right hand. There you yeah. Go. <laughs> <laughs> I literally was like, we'll leave. I literally texted Mark. I was like, because we were trying to make this a little shorter. So we know you have like a hard out at one point. Um, and I was like, Mark, uh, let's cut the life updates, but we can let Jay talk about his hand if he wants to. He can just break it. <laughs> if you have a lot of like psychological damage related to the hand, you need to get it out. I will just say one little venting is that I'm on a softball team. I dough for a ball, and everyone keeps saying, lie, tell a cool story. You cut. I didn't catch it, though. I'm not going to lie. I dropped the ball, and I broke my hand. I'd never broken a bone. I turned 30. Two days later, break my right hand, doing something that I do all the time. I play two days a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays in a men's league. I'm always running. I'm diving. I'm sliding. And then now my hand is broken, and for five weeks, I've really been tied down. Just watching a lot of movies, though. I've been watching more movies than usual, and I already watch a lot of movies. So it was an excuse to be more lazy. Nice. Jay. How did you first encounter Pixar? How did I first encounter Pixar? Well, I was born in 1993, so I'm a child of Pixar. I feel like Pixar is my childhood. When you ask me, you know, the animated films that are the touchstones, I mean, there's the classic Disney. There's like those that four mega run they had in the late 80s, early 90s. And then there's the Pixar movies. And that's kind of my animated childhood. And Mm -hmm. I can't remember. I think the first one I saw in theaters was Bugs Life. I remember seeing a Bugs Life Toy Story I'd already seen on on VHS. That was oh, that was what I see. The bring back memories here. They used to have the VHS um, for Bugs Life. Would have I remember after it came out, they would always have at Hollywood Video across the street from my house, and there was a Blockbuster. We'd go to Blockbuster more, but Hollywood Video was closer, less selection, but I'd still go there. They would always have uh, the every case was a different bug on it. You know, they used to do that all the time at stores oh, where like cool. they would put different yeah. characters on all the cases. So as a kid, you know, and you didn't own the movie, like I'd go rent the same movies a lot of times, but I'd always have to like change the cover or always get the same exact cover or do certain things with it. And I don't know, it just reminds me of that. So my, my, my memory of Pixar is walking through a video store and grabbing, and he's, I'm forgetting the names. What's the Caterpillar's name? That was my uh, favorite Heimlich. Character. Heimlich. I mean, come on. Heimlich's Choo Choo Train. How could I forget Heimlich's that? Great. The best ride at California Adventure that they tore out. R.I.P. So R.I.P. But then <laughs> Toy Story, of course, everything. I remember seeing all of it. I remember seeing Toy Story 2 in theaters. I remember seeing Monsters, Inc. when I lived in Long Beach for a year. We went to the big theater there and saw Monsters, Inc. with my neighbors. Um, Finding Nemo. I mean, oh, so many things. Like, I mean, I just I love Pixar. My, my 10 favorite animated films, probably five or six are Pixar, to be honest. Yeah. But I'm also I'm not like guy. an animated person. <laughs> I'm not like Danny over here. Like, who's like, not, not nothing against it, but like, it's just not. My uh, even if I am an animated person, I'm willing to, I don't have it open right now, but I'm willing to bet if I look at my top 10 animated, there's, I'm willing to bet four are at least Pixar, which is yeah. a lot for someone who's into animation, you know, yeah. like mm-hmm. to keep four of them like the same creative team. Yeah, because I only, like, nah, only know like, the mainstream kind of animation. That's really all I've kind of seen, to be honest. Sorry, I just remember we don't uh, well, we don't need to get into it too much, but I remember your Puss in Boots for you getting people mad, and I was like, yeah, get people mad, please. No, sign up so, about Puss in Boots. Hey, I wait, can't say this. There is that Goldilocks. It's, it's, it's fine. It's a good kiss. People acting like it's something great. There's this, this guy's like the big 
Hansel and Gre- whatever that guy, the villain guy. What's his name? I don't know. Oh, the Jack. Yeah. Oh, I hate him. Uh, Jack. Jack Horner. It's weird to see everyone giving these things. Like I'm like, role. that's just a regular Shrek villain. This is the villain I've seen in every DreamWorks movie I've ever seen. It's so. It's like as someone who grew up watching these movies, it's weird to be now 30 and be like, yeah, it's just a. It's a. It's a DreamWorks movie. I. I, I mean, I get people. I just that's that for me is a little. And then for me, the Goliath character last thing annoyed me because there's a point in a movie where. I think all she says is the same thing. There's three or four different times where she makes the same joke. Now, little this, not too much of that. Oh, that's just right. It's like you can do it once, you can do it twice, four times. Every time she speaks, it's well, a pun see, about pop. You can cool. do it. I get it. I get it. But it's fine. It's for children. It's not for a third year old man. But when I go online, I see 37 and I'm like, this is the best movie ever made. I'm like, I don't know. I, I think I made, I, I don't know if Mark enemies here. That's why I get my IMDb score on this podcast. But what drives me crazy is like the people who are like, wow, such, wow, this is shows how panic attacks are done so realistically. So many people are going to see this who haven't seen it before. I'm like, dude, the most popular television show, not television show, that's too much. The most popular comedy on TV right now besides Abbott Elementary is Ted Lasso. And the entire second season is built around him having panic attacks. You cannot tell me that adults, who are presumably the people tweeting this, have not seen a panic attack depicted in media before. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Come on. Uh, <laughs> come on. But I want to make I no problems with her. I didn't think I had nothing negative really to say about that. That's just from an adult perspective. It's like I don't mind any of those things, but my attraction to Pixar movies is there's a, the little extra sense of, sort of say, realism. But there's, I guess, when I watch a lot of anime, there's that sense where things go into cartoon logic and cartoon mode. And this, right, so he falls into that at some points. But there's a part of like where I, that's where maybe some of the blockbusters feel today, where they stop. I don't know. There's a point where it becomes unrelatable in a sense, which is fine for an enjoyment, but it doesn't have that deeper level for me to, I guess, as I grow older, to keep that level where, wow, this is just as good as when I was 10 when I'm 30 somehow. All right. And then what what would you say the first thing you think of when you hear like Pixar, you think of Pixar? You know what, you know what I'm getting at? Like, what is like the characteristics? I mean, I, I think of the Incredicoaster at California Adventure when you say Pixar, personally, because I just was at Disneyland. Fun ride. Um, but um, I was California Screaming back when I was the one time I visited. Disneyland. Yeah, well, low key California Screaming was kind of better. The music was custom to it. So, but it is nice some of the upgrades they made to the ride. But I like the old music better. Cause... Have I ever told you my story about that ride? Uh-uh. Going on it as a kid, my dad told me it was a normal wooden coaster. And it effectively scared me off riding a launch coaster for like eight years, seven or eight years, because I was just so freaked. Because I was like six, seven when we went. So I was just thinking, I was not expecting to be like shot up, even though I'm sure it's like pretty mild. But like for a first time, time on that, expecting just to be like, oh yeah, it just goes up and down. Nope, it was too intense for little baby Danny. Well, my, <laughs> my sister went out at four. I stuffed uh, napkins under her shoes and she loved it, so... But no, but I'm well, joking. I'm Me personally, I chickened out the first time we went. When I was a kid, I went at eight years old. I cried and I ran through the thing. I said, no, thank you. I'm not riding it. So no blame to you whatsoever. I wasn't until I was older I started loving rides. Yeah. Um, but no, Pixar, I guess if yeah, we're going with you know, all these distractions, I, I, I do think of like Toy Story and Bugs Life and Monster. I think of all that stuff. It's just like now that I'm older, it kind of homogenizes into like a, one big memory than a specific thing. But Toy Story, I think, is my favorite animated movie. So I do think about Toy Story. I guess the most. Um, what? Well, let me then adjust this. Even though I, I you, you answered everything the way. Like, good, good, good answers. Um, but what do you think of when you think of Pixar like today? Like, say, like Pixar's like, oh, we got 
Something new, like I'm not saying like the stuff they've announced. I, this is like a hypothetical, like oh, there's a new Pixar movie out. What, what do you think when you hear that? You know, you, you remember that, like there's a new Pixar out or something. Um, I mean, I'm gonna see it. I mean, there's no Pixar movie I'm not gonna see. I feel like I'm excited for every Pixar movie. Um, it doesn't mean the same that I thought before. I thought that initial run for me, you know, that first Toy Story to Toy Story three was like, I mean, ten films, like the most perfect yeah. run ever. And then since then, I mean, still love Pixar, but it's not the same regard in my heart. But I'm also I'm a developing person in the same way, and I'm an adult, so yeah. it's hard to necessarily. You can try to think you're objective about things, but you are a product of your time, and it's no coincidence that when people grow up, no matter when they're born, even if they have reasons for things, a lot of their favorite things end up to be from a certain time period. You know, even as you weed things out that aren't of quality, the things that of quality that you still yeah. do love are still from that segment of time period, usually that you watched at a core developmental age. So. Um, it's, it's tough to be, to be as honest, I think about something like that. And I haven't seen them as much. And I'm someone that really depends on how many times, if you see movie 10 times and still love it, that's, you know, that's kind of how I, it is. I wanted to ask, do you know off the top of your head, like what this rewatch of Ratatouille was for you? Cause I remember uh, Jay, when he was on why is he, I think it was your ninth time watching X-Men apocalypse. And we were all just in awe of that. We were all just... <laughs> Um, so do you know, like, what, like, since you've been keeping track of, like, your Yeah, watches, well, since I got a letterbox in 2013, was. I've seen it four times. So, um, okay, but I cool. saw it in theaters and with my mom and my little sister. Here. My little sister was five. We saw Ratatouille in theaters that summer. So I saw it then, and then I probably saw it another two or three times before I got a letterbox. So I had to guess yeah. this was my seventh viewing, or maybe eighth. Okay, so no less DVD than X-Men Oh, I mean, I'm ca- those, no, I'm, those are counting. Oh, it's all watches. That's movie theaters, DVDs, yeah, yeah, yeah. all that streaming. It's just, that's how many times I've sat so, down and paid full attention to the movie. You, you, you're telling me, Jay, that X-Men Apocalypse is more rewatchable than Rat... No, I'm kidding. Rat- well, that's not how it works. Also, you know, it's sometimes <laughs> I, a franchise. I know, you, you yeah. will rewatch like the entire series. Yeah. 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 And sometimes just... these new movies come out, you, you get into it. You watch it, you get the Blu-ray, and then I watch it right when I get the Blu-ray. And then two days later, I want to watch it again and compare. I'll listen to the commentary. And then I'll watch it again the next day. To, you know, So I kind of like some of these new movies like Apocalypse, I'll watch yeah. four or five times in a year. And then they'll get on their cycle of every one or two years whenever I rewatch the series. No, I get, Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's like I saw Top Gun Maverick, you know, like three times in last, like in a few months. Yeah. Um, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm done. Uh, like, you know, now I'm like, oh, maybe I'll catch. No, you know what I mean? Like, maybe yeah, I'll yeah. catch it again like Top two Gun or three years. Times, but yeah. like. Uh, and now I'm on yeah, a, but I'll watch like, it every well, two now years. Now it's like, uh, yeah. All right, Mark, did you have anything you wanted to add to the Pixar questions? Because I feel like I kind of ran Well, I wanted to ask, you mentioned like time periods, and then there was that switch after Toy Story 3. Do you feel like there was an event or a moment after Toy Story 3 where you were like, oh, this is my first negative feeling towards Pixar in a while? Mark, Mark is asking you about Cars 2 right now. I mean, <laughs> it's really simple. Well, yeah, that's, like, that's to- I was the age where like I literally graduated high school in 2011. So, you know, Toy Story 3 lined up perfectly. Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows Part 2 literally came out a month after I graduated. So I like, and it was, came out when I was eight, the first one. So there was, those things were like lined up perfectly with me. So it doesn't help that, yes, I turned 18 and then I started maybe doing drugs and going to raves and DJing and getting into all these other type of things. And, which I still would love movies, but I would do all that stuff. And then on top of that, the next couple of Pixar films were kind of like, you know, Brave and Cars 2. And it's like, eh, whatever be honest i mean yeah. as simple as that it takes a while to get to inside out it's like five years until inside yeah like honestly like, nothing else then really wild what, what's Pixar. after those two i forget see i kind of lost track i can name them all in order uh it goes point. cars two brave monsters you and then they took an off year and then it's inside out oh yeah Monster, and then, and like monsters you i liked like, but i didn't like it as much as those first 10 
you know, it's an enjoyable, fun yeah. movie, but it's not that next echelon. And then inside, after Inside Out, it's like all the sequels, and then Coco's just with the sequels. Which oh, Coco, Coco obviously is like fantastic. Coco like, is the, great. Best, <laughs> the best movie to come out post, post Toy Story 3, I think, is Coco for sure. Uh, 100% agree. I think Coco might be my favorite, period. Like, you know, like definitely one of those things. I, Coco, you know, you're saying like we only watch a movie a few times and then it's like we, we go on a rotation. I think I've seen, I think I Coco is my most logged movie on Letterboxd. I think it's like at eight or nine logs. Wow. That's, um, that's low, that's man. That's a lot. I've got like Jurassic Park at like twenty three. Sorry, that's not as much. Twenty three logs. Okay, but Jurassic Park. Okay, okay, but Coco came out twenty seventeen. So that's true. true. (laughs) All right. Well, then, Mark, if that's are you done with your questions? Uh, Yes. I'm also the worst person to be like, "Hey guys, I have a hard out. We got to shorten the podcast." Meanwhile, I'm like willing to talk for seven uh, hours. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's why I was like, (laughs) "That's why we want you on here." But I mean, it's all good. But uh, to answer Mark's question, you didn't ask because he almost always asks. I guess Uh, Jay did in fact see Turning Red. So Mark's oh, keeping yeah. a track. Mark's keeping right. track of our guests who have seen it because uh, you'd be yeah. surprised how many people are like, "What's that?" I wouldn't. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be surprised because I went to Disneyland. I didn't see a single turning red piece of merch or or T-shirt I, or anything, and I don't know why. I distinctly remember going to the Disney, you know, Disney store after I saw it at the El Cap right next door. They didn't have a single plushie of it. Not a single panda plush toy. And I was like, what? How? Like, how does this not exist for this movie? And I literally just walked from the movie to the Disney store. That makes no sense. Uh, Come on, Disney. Yeah. So, this is the Letterboxd game um, where we try to guess film movies based on films that Letterboxd says we might also enjoy. Because they have... I don't know if you noticed, Jay, on Letterboxd, they added this bizarre thing at the bottom where it algorithmically says, this movie's similar to this. Um, so, for example, if Letterboxd recommends Big Hero 6 and Megamind, um, the movie you could be trying to guess could be Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, right? Okay. Um, I start by giving you the first five recommended titles. After every wrong guess, you either get more titles or another hint. Now, I'll leave titles outside of the recommended list if they have the same director of the original film or in the same franchise. So, for Spider-Verse, I would not say Amazing Spider-Man because it's a Spider-Man movie. Uh, nor would I say Rise of the Guardians because it has the same director, Peter Ramsey. Sure. With our guests, what we've been doing recently is, well, when we have guests, we keep it to a movie that's over $100 million. Now, Jay, I know you're a connoisseur of film. <laughs> So I've actually done the opposite for you. We're going to be the most. Jesus. These are like movies from the last two months. No, 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 no. These are movies that I've watched since the beginning of the year, organized by Letterboxd's most popular, but they didn't. None of them made a hundred million. And I will say this right now: I did actually remove the second place one because I'll just tell you what it, I knew. Mark hasn't seen it. I did not. I also did, just didn't want to do a round on the whale, so I just was like, ah, we don't need to. We oh, don't I need to do the whale. The whale. Oh, I didn't. I didn't want to do the whale. I'm sorry. Um, but I have three rounds, okay? Okay. I'm very now, curious about what the, it's a shame. You can, um, you can play either competitively with Mark or you can play together. It's your choice, Jay. Up to Mark. Uh, we should do competitively. Yeah, I like okay. to compete personally. Now, before, before we start, I want to give you an example because I do this whenever we do a movie. Is This is what Ratatouille's five similar films would be. is Over the Hedge, Clive a Chance Meatballs, How to Train Your Dragon, Ice Age, and A Bug's Life. So that's that's like that's like an example round. All right, you ready for round one? These are in order from how Letterboxes is the most popular to least popular of like the top three most popular. Okay, fit in the criteria I said. Okay, <laughs> I think actually yeah. your first round will be the toughest, but we will see how it goes. So 
Your five films are The Atom Project, Free Guy, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, The Matrix Resurrections, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Is it everything everywhere all at once? Was it was it what Mark said? Um, do you want to just copy that guess, Jay? You're, we'll let you. Do you want? To. I mean, it sounds like a good guess to me. All right, we'll let you copy it this time. Normally we don't, but yeah, it is everything ever all at once. I don't have to copy. He um, got it for. He gets the point. I didn't guess it. He yeah, came he gets up the point. He gets what the, are you talking well, about. I don't get the tie. Well, I win. No, 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 no. King. Are you ready for uh, round two? Yes. All right, round two. Your five films are Dawn of the Dead, the remake. I Am Legend, Day of the Dead, 2008, uh, The Girl of All the Gifts, and World War Z. Night of the Living Dead? Um, whatever that Jim Jarmusch one was called, the zombie movie. Oh, The Dead Don't Die? The Dead Don't Die. The Dead Don't Die is the Jim Jarmusch. Um, okay, the original Night of the Living Dead is in the top 25. It's not this movie, and The Dead Don't Die is not in it. So now I'll give you the year this movie came out, okay? This movie came out in 2002. Ooh, was it 28 days later? Yeah, I think that's what it is, and he got it first, so I'll give it to him. Mark, Mark gets the point. But we will still play the final round, even though Mark won, because we will see if you can get get one. <laughs> that didn't sound as rude as it did. But I'm going to we'll foreshadow a no, but let's see how it goes. All right, this one is, you know, uh, your five films are, so forget all the ones we just said about zombies. Five films are, Mulholland Drive, All About Eve, Vertigo, Citizen Kane, Inland Empire. Um, Sunset Boulevard. I'll just guess another Billy Wilder movie. Uh, Some Like It Hot. Uh, Is Some Like It Hot in the top 25? No, it's not, but it doesn't even matter because Jay got it. It is Sunset Boulevard. Oh, yeah. At least I got one. Yeah, you did it. You did it. Um, the next five are very interesting for Sunset Boulevard. Cause it's the Nightmare Alley Guillermo del Toro remake, then Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby in Babylon, and then I haven't seen this. I'm sure Jay, you have, but Vanilla Sky. But that mm-hmm. one, I'm a little like, what? Like, oh, is that similar to Sunset Boulevard? I, um, I don't know. <laughs> not really. Maybe in terms of like, it's one person's like downfall. But what a what a what a lineup of a movie that two of your related films can be Vertigo and Citizen Kane. Like, you know, like. All right. Shall we cool. talk? That went really quick. That was that was like one of our quicker rounds. Actually. That was so bad. Well, well I was displaced uh, by your Facebook feed. Yeah. Earlier <laughs> on, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't cheating. I just have had a good week of being aware of your Facebook feed. Let's cool. talk about why we're here. Let's talk about Ratatouille. Danny, can you explain Ratatouille? I'm opening up the Wikipedia page. So while Ratatouille is a film Ratatouille, a groundbreaker. This is a the first movie Pixar ever made where they fired the director and kept going on, which became a bad habit of theirs. Well, I guess we can't really say it was a bad habit because we don't know how the other director's movies would have turned out. But you know what? In the case of Ratatouille, I think it did work out. Ratatouille is Brad Bird's second movie at Pixar. Kind of crazy. He made it just within three years of being, uh, you know, doing uh, an Incredibles. But you know what? Very interesting part of its history at the studio is that initially before Pixar was bought by Disney in the early two- in early 2006, Ratatouille, they were saying, we're going to put this out independently just to see how it goes on our own. Um, obviously that did not happen. Disney bought them way beforehand. 
Um, but it's just that's this movie of all movies would have had that stake on it of being like, this is the movie that puts Pixar's price tag out there. Well, have you heard the story about why Bob Iger, the, the key decision he says made him buy it? I mean, obviously it's a more, more than one thing, but he said he was at Hong Kong Disneyland for the opening of the, the it was September 2005 and it was right before he became CEO. And the opening day parade, they watched it and all the characters... He said every cheer that got the biggest cheer, it wasn't the Disney characters. They didn't know them in China and stuff. It was the Pixar characters. Everyone loved them. And that's when he realized, he goes, no, Pixar is Disney. And if we don't get Pixar, it's the biggest loss ever. So he made the right decision going after them. And you can feel, I think, this movie was like yeah. in some way, I don't know how to explain it, but when I watch it, there's little parts and maybe something visual. It feels like there's a swing there that you can see the remnants of like they were making this to not be a Disney movie at one point, kind of in a way. Or there's just something about it that feels like it didn't get the first pass of notes from the first draft of like, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do this. Don't do this. Like there's it just I don't know. Something about it feels very original. I think you see that with both this and Wally, where it's like these were both made like initially starting during like that era where they were like, no, yeah, it's just us. We can do whatever we want. And that's why I think, I think both these movies, up to, but not as much, I think both these movies have like an air of sophistication around them that the other Pixar movies don't necessarily have. This movie, of course, was nominated for five, well, it won, of course, anime feature, because Pixar movies like always win it, but then it was also nominated for original score, both sound awards, and screenplay. It's the second most Oscar nominations for an animated film, tied with Up and Toy Story 3, behind Beauty and the Beast and WALL-E. Um, Ratatouille, it's a, it's a, it's a big movie, right? Like it's a it's a big big movie for Pixar. It I, if I remember right, it uh, I don't have I, I should have opened the box office, but I remember at the time people were saying like this is a little little disappointing for Pixar. But the fact is, then you watch the movie, you're like, wow, actually, like the fact that this like made as much money as it did shows the power of the Pixar brand. That was an exaggeration, though. I always felt like because I was thinking about two watching because I I don't remember on hand, but looking it up, it was one of those things where like Pixar two Pixar movies before did like two thirty seven and two twenty, and then. Ratatouille did like 207 and it's like okay it's a movie about a rat like that's like how yeah. is that you know it was one of those it's, things where it was like a it's very not that from, from cars is it it was something like it's, it's still not did that like from 600 from... million worldwide i thought plus right or well yeah because um i think this is one of the better if i again i should just have it open on like a spreadsheet of all the pixar money just so i can have these stats available but um if i remember right this did really well was considered to do really well overseas for 07 because like you know set in paris but also like and obviously that the story kind of travels pretty easily um everyone knows what rats are everyone kind of has the same cultural reaction to rats so yeah did i read right that it was the highest grossing film in france and it it upset titanic <laughs> let's just I know see it's I, one I, of the most popular well, i have no idea where i read that and i didn't take a note about it so you I mean, had, that was something i imagined it defroned titanic for the most consecutive weeks as number one at the box office in france so not not beating Titanic, but like having that stat of being number one for however many weeks Titanic was number one in France. It was the first non-sequel film in 2007 to reach the number one spot since Disturbia. I think that's a fun stat. The, the, I've never seen Disturbia. I should probably Yo, see it Yo, Disturbia recommendation. Uh, Let's make a Disturbia podcast, okay? I like Disturbia. I'm a fan <laughs> of Disturbia. Whoa! Actually, now I I actually didn't realize this. Um, Disturbia is written by Christopher Landon who is recently directing the Happy Death Day movies and Freaky, which I had had fun with. You know, like, they're, they're decent fun. Uh, he has a Netflix movie out that I have no interest in seeing because it looks like top, like, you know, like, classic, like, oh, it's a Netflix movie. All right, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I think Disturbia is a little bit better than the films he's made himself. I like Disturbia. 
But then again, I also saw it when yeah, I was. I didn't think it was more of a comedy. Isn't it like, isn't Disturbia also this pretty, pretty like straightforward thriller? Maybe like a couple jokes here and there, but it's yeah. not like those movies where they're trying to be comedies. It's supposed to so. be like a low rent, like rear window for teenagers. I just remember, I, I remember kind of wanting to see it because I was like around the time, you know, the Transformers ads were out. So it's like, ah, Shia LaBeouf, so cool. And of course, as we talked about in our last episode, surfs up Shia LaBeouf, yeah. So at the time it was like, cool, like. I want to watch Disturbia. That looks so edgy. I was like 11 when Disturbia came out. So <laughs> that's the episode. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we're talking about 2007. Do you all, Jay, you said you saw it in theaters, didn't you? I did see it in theaters with my family, my mom and my little sister, who was like five at the time. How did that go? Good. It went great. I mean, I, re- well. I remember seeing all the Pixar movies every year with my family. So I remember liking it. I don't know. Too, so- like, too much of my out of theater reaction from 17 years ago is not too strong or. Come on, you, Jay. So yeah, I want to no. ask. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, Jay, you had one job was to go on this podcast and remember exactly your reaction from 2007 to the Ratatouille. <laughs> well, you can for some reason. So people come on and I'm like, I well, don't know. Do you also have this power? But I, I was, wanted to ask, you know, comparing it to when you saw it as a kid versus rewatching it now. Maybe you can compare it to rewatching it today for the show. Well, this is the problem when I told or... Danny, like, Ratatouille is of all the movies. This is one of those movies, of all the pictures, this is like the one film, like, I don't know, I don't really have much thought. Like, I've seen, every time I've seen it, I feel the exact same way. I feel like my opinion, like, never, like, <laughs> I just I just go, yeah, yeah, that's Ratatouille, great, love it, fantastic. <laughs> and, I, and, I, huh? and I like Jay. it a lot, and in the very end, the last 25 minutes, I cry. <laughs> I cried for, like, the last six minutes straight. I bawled my eyes out, but I bawled yeah. all the time. I cry movies pretty easy, but... It, I mean, I cried in cars four times, like four different occasions, for gosh sakes. That Hudson Hornet, man, that makes my tears just sob. But <laughs> but no, I mean, the ending yeah. of this movie, with the, when he's reading the review, I'm like, how do you not cry? I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. but yeah, I oh, feel bad because so yeah. many other movies I would come on here. I'd be comparing and contrasting and runtimes and this and that. Well, if you look at this and if you look at that. and, let's, and I actually movie, did I'm check runtimes like, no, sometimes during this because I know you do. I know you check runtime, so I did check runtimes a couple. I was like, when does Anton Ego finally like show up in the story proper? When like I, I didn't write any of them down. I should have written them down. It feels very late. That's what yeah. I noticed. It is late. It's like it a thir- it's like, like the third act actually, when all that stuff kind of hits the fan. Yeah. yeah, it's really incredible. Well, we'll talk about the structure in a little second. But yeah. so you're pretty mellow on Reddit. How did you? Why did you choose this one to come on? I mean, I did. Like, he just he tells he me five Okay, cool. Jay, no, I no, didn't I just, just tell you. You gave me like five options. I was like, how about rat? And you're like, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, you, <laughs> I, you just said how I said, sure. I said I wanted to do one of the ones that came out before Toy Story 3. That was my stipulation, basically. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I can love that. We'll fair. talk about it throughout the whole thing, but I just don't have any grand other thoughts. Broad strokes, the structure is interesting because, like we were talking about Anton, it's like the, the second act downfall happens at the beginning of the third act of this movie, kind of structurally in a way. It kind of has an elongated opening because then you kind of have a which makes movies feel fresh the longer you can drag something out. So you get to meet the Remy and you spend all that time setting it up, which I think every time you watch, you're like, oh, it's a little longer than you think. And then you get to meet um, every the, the human characters and you kind of set that all up. And it takes a while for them to get through the whole process of that. So you're kind of just understanding the flow of the movie and the setup. And then you kind of enjoy that for a little bit. And then it's really, like, I think it's like an hour and seven, hour and eight, when like really stuff ha- starts to like kind of go south. And by that point, there's really only like 40 minutes left in the film, which I guess like is a very tail end of the second act. But it kind of does like two mini um, downfalls. Like it doesn't have one big one. Um, it kind of has the, the initial one where he puts them out and he leaves them out for the night and then he's sorry about it. And then there's like the double stab in the back. Or was it before? What's the 
The double stab in the back is uh, what point? I'm trying to think. There's a because there's a part then where he lets the whole family in. There's another thing that happens. Yeah, well, so before, but I feel like I don't know if I can think of another time when he really betrays Linguini. No, but there's like a, not a well, betrayal. But Linguini kind of betrays him. Look, Linguini's like, you need to get some air, little chef. It's my, this is my, <laughs> I have success. Yeah, yeah. It's like, maybe Whoa. the answer is that like Remy lets his friends in. Or he actually like oh sorry it's he, it's, I, on my second rewatch he lets his friends in off screen the first time yes. it doesn't actually work because he's interrupted by having to, to like find the will we don't actually it's so fascinating he doesn't get, I don't think he gets we don't know what that. happened to them yeah they just stood there and watched him run by and then just nothing happened I just took it as like you know they're like well uh, I guess it's not gonna work this time and they came back with the tough guy well, I know the tough guy the tough guys are that time too but I think they're just like. Yo, what's up? Give it to us now. He's like, all right, all right I'll do it. You know what I mean? But what I'm like, saying is that all happened. It's all implied, and we see in montage that he actually does agree. It's just funny to me that this it's like this big moment because he's always struggling with stealing food or not. It happens It happens off screen. It's so interesting. Well, I don't know if it happens no, off screen. Wait, wait. I don't think it happens that first time. I think like he goes to get in by himself. They don't follow him. Then the whole letter yeah, thing happens. It agree. doesn't imply that like, maybe they never got in. It doesn't say. And then I think then the montage happens. You see him do it. It's like... Now it's a thing he's doing for them, but so it's hard. I don't know per se but if the they snuck in faith. later or if it did that. I, I I got the idea that they didn't eat that first time from the from the kitchen. Mm. All right, pause, Mark. Where did you first encounter Ratatouille? <laughs> well, I think Ratatouille is one of the Pixar films I've seen the most, and it's interesting because I keep watching this film, but how much it's affected my life is hard to say. I remember seeing it first in theaters. And I think I had the experience that everyone had is like you immediately want to cook things and you feel like you can see the world more clearly and life is bright and beautiful. And then <laughs> I feel, I mean, for me, it was like watching that film and then going home and like fucking shit up in this on the stove and everything like that. And then just uh, rewatching it probably if every few years in different scenarios and having the same experience and then re-watching it for this podcast too it's all it's like ratatouille is a film that gives me that coco experience of sitting on the curb curb and just enjoying like the world around me that's been my experience with ratatouille and basically in the same way same way each time too i don't want to say that it hasn't affected me outside of watching the film but it's always like this ideal beautiful world that you can't access so i go back to it sometimes to think about what could be but you know it's inaccessible because it's a fantasy but that's been my experience watching ratatouille i'm not i didn't like become a chef or anything like that sure. and i didn't like move to france or anything like that i think that it's even not super related to how i watch most other films i just really enjoy ratatouille when I was growing up, my parents said that we could always have two birthday parties. Like, like you know, normally birthdays just with the family. But for your sixth birthday party, that's when we're going to have a party at McDonald's. You know, because they have the play place. You can get the, you know what I mean? Like, this is a giant play place yeah. there when you're six. That's really exciting. And you can bring your cake there. And that's that's where the party is when you're six. When you're 12, you get to choose what your birthday party is. And my young, my older brother I don't remember where I picked it because at that point, you know, I'd already done it. So I, I don't, it didn't matter to me anymore. But my older brother, when he was 12, picked a bowling alley, um, like going bowling with the friend's birthday party. 
Um, me, I've always liked movies. I've always adored Pixar. And my birthday is July 3rd. This movie came out, I believe, like June 29, June 30, somewhere around there. So, of course, my birthday, yeah, June 29. Of course, my birthday party was going to be, we're all coming together to go watch Ratatouille. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, I got I don't want to judge friends. your birthday, but that's kind of weak. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, impressive you that I got everyone to go on board of us. Ratatouille, I feel like. I feel like that could be a bonus. I feel like you could have said anything to your parents. And I want to watch uh, Movie theater tickets are pricey like, sure. for my parents. I think bowling is actually probably cheaper than my parents taking all my friends to see Ratatouille. <laughs> you know? I think Ratatouille is probably a bit more pricey. No. Um, but you know what? I was, I was 12, so. But anyway, yeah, we, we all saw Ratatouille. I think I definitely liked it way more than anyone else did. But you know what? When 12 is still the age where you don't really give a shit about what your friends thought of the movie. Yeah. I mean, at 12, I was sneaking uh, into, like, I, want, I was watching, like, some hard R comedies, though. So I would have, I, you know. I've always, I've always been a, you know, big Pixar guy. So I was like, ah, yes, Ratatouille, great. Love it. Um, and then I promptly never really watched it again until, like, maybe, like, in 2010 or 2011, I watched it again. Still liked it then. Which is ridiculous. And then, weirdly, this is, like, the... Well, no, this is what's crazy. Well, that's why I know it's your third time, probably, right? So, yeah. Maybe maybe I watched it twice. Like, maybe it was on cable once in, like, my senior year, and I watched a bit of it on Freeform. You know what I mean? Like, maybe that happened. Well, I guess it would be ABC Family back then, but that doesn't really matter for the story. Um, but, so the reason, though, I want to point out here is that before this podcast, the last time I tried to run through all the Pixar movies... Was the build up to Incredibles two? Because I think Incredibles two is like the twentieth movie, um, and I was like, oh yeah, is it not? Am I wrong? Oh you no, no, I'm the like Incredibles two. Great, that's, that's my grade for Incredibles two. Sorry. Oh okay, Probably. got it. Thumbs um, down. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I'm gonna watch every Pixar thing up to then, including like the short films, like literally what this podcast is. Um, but I have the Blu-ray of Ratatouille. Okay. Like I weirdly own the blue. I think it's like one of those first Blu-rays you got. You know when it was. So I was like, oh yeah, I got Ratatouille. So I pull out my Blu-ray in college of Ratatouille because my senior year of college. I put it in, and for some reason the movie just does not load. And I look at the DVD and it's the Blu-ray. It's full of scratches. And I'm like, ah, I don't know how this happened, but this sucks. It like, re- like I click play movie and it's just Remy like doing like the loading screen of the Blu-ray and it's just Remy doing the hula with like a round of cheese and it just. Whenever it's, it just stops and then just goes back to the Disney logo of like the trailers beginning. I'm like, no. And I just, I was like, just so upset. Cause at that point, you know, these movies aren't really on streaming anywhere. I couldn't really rent it anywhere. So I was just like, well, shoot. I guess this, this journey is over. Like I'm done. I, cause I can't watch Ride 2 right now and I don't want to like find it. So damn. And what's, what's weird was I pull out the same Blu ray yesterday. Put it in. The whole movie works. So I don't huh. know what's wrong with what, no, what Blu-ray, happened No, Blu-ray, this is a common misconception people always make about Blu-ray's things. You can put a blind and brilliant skips. It's the player that usually has the problems. So as someone it's who has like a player, Blu-ray though. player I and have the Xbox, same player. it goes like, I have Mummy Returns on Blu-ray, right? Oh, I have wait. seen that movie a gazillion times. And in my old Blu-ray player, it would skip at the same moment, the same 20 seconds, no matter what I did for fucking nine viewings. I put it in the Xbox, it plays through it perfectly every single time. I put it in that old DVD player, it would skip. There's other movies that like would skip at 1.5 minutes in, never skip again. I put it in the Xbox, wouldn't skip for five minutes in, and then an hour and ten minutes in it skips. But if I put it in the DVD, it wouldn't skip at that time. So I learned that it was like, I think it's the player actually a lot of times that is somehow not reading it right or cleanliness. But 
yeah See, i don't know Tell me that's what i was confused by because now i realized that i thought i was watching all the same player but then i just i literally just realized when you said that i was like oh wait because this isn't the same player because in college my used my one of my housemates ps4's ps4 yeah not ps5 yet ps4's to watch it so yeah i guess it was just the ps4 player Random. Now this makes sense. I thought, because I was like, I had the same Blu-ray in co- player in college. What are you talking about, Jay? You're wrong. And I was like, oh, wait, no, no. My roommate had a PS4. <laughs> so I guess I watched it in the PS4. So it's that's also not a scientific thing. It's just me more. based off having two in my house and going back and forth. <laughs> I, I've told this podcast, story on this podcast before, but I just remember the time I went back to the family video and I was like, uh, there's a problem with this Force Awakens Blu-ray. It skips from like... If you've seen this movie, and I was like, wait a second, you work at a video store, of course you've seen this movie, and this, the, the clerk's like, yeah, of course I do. I'm like, okay, this is really awkward. So uh, it just doesn't work. <laughs> it's like, just take it. I'm not going to explain it anymore. Just, just get this out of my hands. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, so that's why I, that's really why I never rewatched because I tried to rewatch it a couple years back, and it just didn't work. So, but now I have finally... Rewatch Ratatouille on a Blu-ray, not on Disney Plus. So obviously better than I did. I didn't. I don't have a Blu-ray, so me neither. I have a multi-region player. Whoa, whoa. hold up, big guy. Yeah, no, I actually that was a like Christmas gift from back when I lived with my parents a while back, and now it's in my apartment here, and it's great. I want. I wanted it. Honestly, can I share a deep cut with you that I don't know your, <laughs> you know, classic film background or like foreign, you know, obscure shit, but I got it because. There was like a box set of Yoshishige Yoshida films. Okay. And it was one of those like Arrow releases. Yeah. And I don't mean Arrow, whichever is the UK company, but it was one of those like very deep cut things. And I wanted to get the player for this like this one box set. And now it's cool to have it in case I ever need it again. It's kind of my main DVD player, but it was funny that I was like, it was at a time when I was so interested in like very obscure Japanese film, sure. and I was like, if I get all these things, then I will be the authority on this <laughs> in, person um, in the Midwest. You should have started a Midwestern Japanese Film Club podcast. That should have been my entire ass life. The college <laughs> I went to um, did not know what I was talking about. I later found out that the University of Wisconsin is the place that has the big Japanese film studies library. Wow. Yeah, that could have been a great change. What I was going to say also about, well, region-free... Have I told you this, Mark? This funny story is that, you know, you, you know, fe- regions and, like, Blu-rays, is in 2021, my younger brother made the same, mis- like, s- same mistake for my birthday and for Christmas, uh, and that's because he bought me Sound of Metal on Blu-ray from England somehow by accident for my birthday, and I was like, this doesn't work, this, this won't work with what I got. It's like, okay, and then that wasn't weird to me, like, because that's like an Amazon movie, so it's like, I get, there There was no US release, so I understood, like, the confusion, it's like, oh, must this one must work, but then somehow for Christmas, he gave me the Matrix trilogy on a England Blu-ray, and I was like, how'd you, how'd you mix this one up? They're, <laughs> they're cheaper on Amazon sometimes, those UK ones, actually, if you look online, they sometimes come in packs, and they're, like, the wrong region, but they're way cheaper. Like, you can buy the three Thors for the wrong region from, like, the UK for, like, 15 bucks. Yes. But I was just like, well, and that, for The Matrix, it kind of worked out. Because I was like, just get me all four. Because, you know, Blu-rays come out so quick now. And that this, because it was Christmas. So I was like, just yeah, yeah. wait two months and give me the, all four of them. Just so I have all four. Yeah, well, I think so this is great. This is a great movie. <laughs> this is a great. Yeah, I, would, I would love to dig in a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. 
maybe this is related to what we were saying earlier. Maybe it's not. I had a my realization watching this film is that a lot of the themes do not matter in terms of the plot. There are a lot of big speeches, like I'm thinking of especially the time when I was like, when Ratatouille is talking to Gusto and it's Remy and Gusto are talking <laughs> in the trunk of the car and they have this big moment of, oh, I'm all alone and stuff like that. And then they break him out of the car and then he goes back mm -hmm. to the restaurant and it's like, well, why did you have that moment of like, self-realization when really we're waiting for your family to break you out of the car uh -huh. and their confidence in you is really what makes you go back to the restaurant it doesn't need to yeah. be this big moment where you're like i am i know who i am and what i bring to the table it's like no you don't you still need the family to you know change the conditions of the scene for you mm -hmm. and I, I feel like that's a lot of the film is like you know i actually watched that scene twice so, sorry so, i just thought it was funny because i that scene played through and then it went on to the next thing and i was like wait why is he going there? and i rewound and i watched that whole conversation I, so twice and then the second time I, I was like, i'm not oh, okay, joking i did the same thing for me and i, just I did the same thing mm -hmm. i did the exact same thing and the reason why i think i did it is because there's a really like he's like I'm, they say I'm a rat. Some people say I'm... I don't remember what he says about the other thing. They say, like, I'm, I'm trying to act like a human. I'm trying to act like a rat. And then he leaves. And it, But it's, like, there's, like, a solid maybe, like, 20 seconds, before, like, the breakout takes. And then his next line is, like, I'm a chef. I'm, like, okay. So, like, I guess that's what this was building to. But at the time, I completely forgot what your last lines were because I was busy watching this breakout happen. So, like, it I'm so, I, I'm so glad that you guys are having this experience because normally this is how I am. I cannot listen to the dialogue in a film, and I feel like I miss things, so mm -hmm. I'm glad that I watched it twice for this rewatch, but I'm glad that, <laughs> to an extent y'all are with me on this, is that, like, if you listen to what these people are saying, it's like, well, you can get there. Like, you understand that he's, you know, he wants to be an artist and he wants to be a chef, but so much of the film yeah. is has more to do with, like, the economics of running a restaurant and But I love that! Story. I love... Well, I that's love, what I love, too. I love, I love the, to me, the it's film like the flows. restaurant. Yeah. I just like that this movie has such a, like, obvious, you know, that's the thing to me where we're talking about, like, how this feels very, like, it missed the notes on Disney. Is like, this has such a clear love for, like, chef life. Like, it's like, ah, here's, here's the process of making food. Here are the people in the kitchen all doing their jobs. And it's just like, mm -hmm. ah, like, I, I love, like, it's, go and it's gorgeously depicted, wonderful colors, obviously, but also just like, ah, yeah, like, when he's, like, I get to cook this soup right now. It is exciting because you've seen like everyone else be cooking in this kitchen. I'm a big fan of process movies, like filmmaking movies, even ones I don't like. Like I just watched Being the Ricardos. Wasn't a great movie, just like an average movie. But I do like just seeing behind the scenes. So that aspect of it always keeps me engaged to an extent because it's what I do. But even the cook, uh, cooking movies, any movie about chefs, even if they're bad, I'm always invested to the end and want to see the food and want to see how it gets made. And there's something about that lifestyle and that passion that they have and I guess you get to visually see it on screen translate. Like you see the passion in someone's face and you're seeing them create. And there's something about that that is like inspires everyone to like, even if you're just sitting on the couch watching it inside, we all feel that joy of like, there's something like that I want to do or I have in me kind of sticks out. So, I mean, who doesn't like watching food movies? I mean, I think and everyone eats food. So there's that bonus there. But like you're saying, there's a level of maturity to it. that That's why I think it feels like the, on Disney in a way where, it's just that extra layer of care, like you're saying, into the process and into the even the way they characterize people. I mean, 
they're doing adult humor and mentions things for only adults, but not in a DreamWorks winky winky way, it, it, in a, a way that feels natural and how she would really feel that way if she was a real chef. Like she would be that, you know, strong-willed and be so determined. And all those people might have a, a background. It's a tough job. I mean, any job that you go work 12 hours or are able to work in that type of line, there's usually a certain type of experience or background or mindset those people have. And I think it did a good job showcasing that on an adult level and not just like a pure character level, even though they are characters. I don't know. I think it's a tough thing to do. And exa- a great example of that, like, love of kitchenness is, you know, you watch a movie like a Miyazaki film mm. and the food looks better than you think it would in real life. And that's what I watched on my first watch of this film, again, for the podcast. So I watched it once, and this was about a week ago, because I wanted to make the Ratatouille in the ways that Remy does it, and also in the way that Anton Ego does it, because I wanted to know if that last scene made sense. And the secret is basically that it has nothing to do with why the movie works. But I made the Ratatouille the way he does it, and I was like kind of disappointed in it because it didn't look as good as I remembered it looking on the film. And then, this is the craziest thing, and I've never had this happen in a film before, is I went back and watched it the second time, and I noticed they actually did it, like, the way that I did it. Like, if you look again at how they prepared the food, like, oh, they've, like, they they browned the eggplant, and it's kind of, like, soggy a little bit, which is how I did it. And they have, like, the sauce on the side is, like, they separated the oil from the tomato sauce and you notice that again the rewatch and you were like i was i was like this this was last night and i was just thinking like how did this happen like i completely missed this on the first watch is i'm so caught up in like the magic of this film that i thought it was all cartoony wonderfulness but they really they really did like dig into how that was made that's good that that you feel that reality in your subconscious like when a movie has that in all levels you know you, it's it's a separation between something good or great or A minus B plus or whatever that is that subtlety, but like it's there and you feel it throughout. And I guarantee, if it's in that one place in the cook, that means it's in probably almost every meal or everything they do in the in the kitchen is probably based in reality. And that means that other stuff they're doing throughout the city and the characters are doing are also based in reality. So it gives you that sense of like connectivity, even though it's just subconscious. But like that's why that stuff's important because if you didn't notice that and they were just throwing something together. There'd be something that would just feel off, especially if you compound that, if there's something every minute that just is not authentic. I mean, I just think, I don't know. Something about movies, I think, compound and decompound. I don't know how to, what's the opposite, but like if you're liking something and you're enjoying Decompress. it, it's working, it, it, it builds on itself, right? If one scene's one percent, if every scene is one percent better, the movie's more than one percent better because it's building upon itself versus the opposite. If you don't like something in the beginning, it can start a domino effect down where because you don't like something, yeah. you're now noticing other things and liking the film less and so on and so forth. Yeah, and it's very difficult with Ratatouille, that for me. I think it comes out as all coming together in the end, but it's sort of an anachronistic movie mm. because it is like 50s, 60s, who knows when this film is happening. But like, Oh, I think starts... it's contemporary. I think it's very, con- I think it's aiming to be 2007, personally. That's where I'm at with it. It feels like 07 to me. Like, there's a weird old lady who does weird old lady things, but like... You know, she's off. She doesn't live in Paris. That's that's to me. To me, there was no question. I thought this was definitely 07 or 06, wherever you want to say. <laughs> here's, here's the deep Ratatouille thing. Unless I missed them say the date, they say that Gusteau died two years before the 
film happens, and yeah, he's doing the is, those black the and gonna white. Will's going to run out up to two years. But then he was being filmed with black and white cameras for his cooking show or that interview with that. And that's why I think, you know, they don't want to put it in a year, which I think is clever. Well, I thought that too. I, forgot, I think French it's actually difficult. That the will is expiring. That the will, it's not two years after Gusto's death, I thought. I thought it was that, because I got confused too. I'm going back and forth. Is it like actually the will itself has an expiration date? And that's so like Gusto could have died and then the oh. will could have worked for six or seven years. And then now that the will's done, it has two more years of like arbitration period or something. But that's getting a little too heady and adult that like I also thought and <laughs> go back and forth. We're like and during the same movie, this watch, I got, I was like, is it two years later? Is it actually years later? I kept debating. And then I said, OK, two years. But then you're saying the black and white thing. And I was thinking about two in the end credits. I was like, wait, but it was black and white. I think it does a thing like Danny says in a way where it is 2007 to him. I think it works, but it doesn't show a time period. But I think it's a timeless movie, which is good. Like it's a movie that if you yeah. would have watched in 1999, I don't think it would have felt out of place and felt like, oh, they're they're dressed too weirdly. I think it would have still felt kind of natural and timeless. And I think in 2050, when you watch it, I don't think it will feel too much like you're watching a period piece. I mean, maybe it will because we will now yeah. have like flying cars, but that never happens right 35 years from now, no matter how many times people keep predicting it because um, stuff's just going to fall <laughs> on top of us. But uh, um, yeah, so it's, I don't know. I was going back and forth about that. So it's interesting you bring that up. I'd really, I don't know. And I kept like, but when I, when I came up with the other, the will expiration thing, I thought that's too deep cut. Like there's no way it's that, it has to be simpler than that. So you have to be right. It has well, to be some of those. Any, also it also though to, to me, it's like, it definitely mm. also is like, oh, we have a frozen food line now, and it's like it's huge. So I, I feel like maybe mm. it's our it. It ultimately uh, doesn't really matter. Too. Yeah, you're but, right. Like so. how many years after the death it is, but it's like they have that big frozen food line that's like capitalizing him after he died. Okay. He died, and I feel like you know that that probably wouldn't fly immediately after okay. he died. Here's dies. a question: Maybe the, anyway. maybe the old lady just has an old TV that's in black and white. Maybe that's a color show. That's, that's what just, I, that's what I took. I just think it's an old lady who lives like in a cottage that feels like it's old. And then when you get to Paris, it's like ah, it's modern Paris, yeah. you know. Like as a filmmaker, I think this is it's fun on a podcast to talk to Steve, but I try not to over because you can do this for any movies you like and not like. Yeah. But as a filmmaker, it's just about making the movie work and sit there and having a pace and enjoyment. So sometimes there might have been a scene, for example, of the Remy having to talk to his friends and say, I can't let you in or do that. But for pace, you just don't need it or you don't exaggerate. James Cameron talks about this for Avatar 2, if you guys saw it. I was wondering, too, you know, where'd the clan go at the end? Full and you knew, episode. I knew there, there was a scene, he cut it, they didn't need it. And he explains that, they didn't. And as much as you notice it, you still enjoy the movie without it. And you have to trust the filmmaker that sometimes asking more questions or answering more questions actually makes people ask more questions and sometimes it's better to just ignore stuff because then people think about it like now that all the harry potter and stuff is out people start i still people now started going that stuff people start judging i hear people complaining about world building in those and to discount who she is person, all that stuff like the they work because they don't think about it like harry potter one because they're not talking about the government if you don't ask that question if they mention it you think about it but because they don't bring it up till the fourth one or fifth one you go oh yeah of course there's this government oh and of course there's other schools of course there's a world cup tournament and it's because the movie's not asking you but if you tell everybody in the first 20 minutes of harry potter one by the way there was a world cup by the way there's a government by the it's too much and you're actually going to be asking too yeah. many questions about the functionality of the movie when all you need is what the, the character needs to know 
And I just think sometimes this stuff falls into that a lot, which is just fun for me to just saying to talk about because I try as a filmmaker no, to sometimes yeah, yeah, avoid yeah. this conversation sometimes to just keep myself on what is the audience. I don't think either of us really think it's like a deal breaker or oh, like, oh, when does this movie, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's just like, oh, it's something interesting to think about, you know? No, of course. Um, what I wanted to say with this movie is like, I remember, and we're, we're going to do a full episode on this because we cover like everything, but when that Ratatouille viral musical came out, I watched I watched that. I watched that more recently than I watched Ratatouille. Um, and I was like, dang, when you put this like into something where it's like they're just singing and explaining the plot in between songs, the plot of Ratatouille is insane. And yeah. I'm watching this. I'm like, yeah, it is really kind of crazy that like I think this movie probably has the most buy in that you need as an audience to really really go along with it because i remember my aunt i remember she this was like one she doesn't really go to movies much anymore but i remember she when i was a kid i was like have you seen ratatouille and she's like yeah and i hated it i was like what how could you hate ratatouille it's like at the end when all the rats are in the kitchen no absolutely not <laughs> no it's like okay like like sure like now i'm watching like yeah i guess that makes sense like because the rats one thing I also want to credit to the movie, and I feel like a lot of our anime movies would just say, like, you know, have Remy walk around like he's human, you know? This movie is like, nah, Remy is actually a rat, and he's going to scurry around everywhere. And I'm like, great, like, cool. But specifically what I'm thinking here is, like, the nonchalant reveal that when Queenie can be controlled as a puppet, and we all, like, as a child are like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And now it's like, whoa, what? <laughs> like, and we get, like, a full, like, Rocky-esque, like, training montage yeah. of him learning how to control him as a puppet i'm like yeah this is but now i'm just like dang i love that we just like as a kid we're like yeah that, that, that makes sense <laughs> when it's like by far i think the weirdest thing and like as someone who like for this podcast has been rewatching all the pixar movies this is by far the weirdest story decision they've made so far in any of these movies is yeah we'll just just have the main the the second character just be like a puppet but Why that not? signifies how good <laughs> the like, filmmaking okay. is, though. You know, to be able to, like, tonally achieve that so effortlessly is a very, like, that's something yeah. you don't think about when you watch something that's working so well. It's, like, it's an impressive tone to, to handle. But it's funny talking about Linguini. I was thinking about, too, because he it's fun that he's blindfolded and it makes sense for the movie. But in reality, you'd be like, you know, if, if there is a reality version of this, you'd ha you wouldn't want a blindfold because you just want to imply. <laughs> you don't need him to do a blindfold. You just need to be, like, reach right no reach more right oh he wants the back spice not the front spice and it'd be better for him to see so he can learn at the same time and i thought that yeah, now Remy, watching it i actually wanted a scene where i thought maybe he should have learned to cook too from her or he could they could have learned to cook together or the rat could be teaching him so he has some basic skills in a way i mean if he can't even know how much to how fast to stir a sauce that's something he should learn and the rat can teach him no faster in a little pan and it's funny to see him but that's too cheesy but i'm just thinking like in reality there's another version where you can make it slightly more realistic but then on top of that sorry to go in the thing i realized linguini he's always as much as i like this movie and i likely i don't say anything negative about him but the human character is weaker and this movie does have two stories there's like remy and there's linguini and i think because Linguini doesn't do anything like it's not like he learns like he learns to stand up for himself but what's his skill set you well, know it's not like he learns to become for... a good business person or learns that he wants to be part of the fam or learns that I mean he kind of just learns his to like I guess to interact he gets, he with gets a girlfriend like <laughs> yeah I just like I don't know what he gen like what's his story arc because it seems like the stuff he's earning is like Remy's earning it all for him well, and what does he learn along the way and how does he personally grow and like he should still have some form of phys something physical that he needs to do to show growth or to show that he has a skill set. Well, I don't know. There's just something. Yeah, I love well, the movie, but there's just something always a little. 
missing when I watch it, but then the ending is so good. I go, no, it's 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 fantastic. That's what happens every time. Well, first, first, I want to like reply to something you said, and then go back to what you're saying, like with Linguini. But I think Remy doesn't teach him because Remy's an asshole. Like he's a like he's an asshole we like, and like because yeah. you know he's never been able to do anything. But Remy's like, nah, this guy could never be as good as me. So why would I even bother? Like he literally, like, I used to always like the thing I always quoted this movie as a kid is like anyone can cook, but that doesn't mean everyone should. You know, like that's because mm-hmm. that's what he says to Gusto, and he's like, well, don't worry, that's the garbage boy. Which by the way, Brad Garrett in this movie, very something where it's like, oh, I know Brad Garrett now, but I still can't hear him at all in that role. Like. Good, good vocal performance. But anyway, um, so to me, I'm like, yeah, Remy would not, like, I see, hear what you're saying. Like, yeah, that would be a logical thing for Remy to do. But Remy as a character, like, not wanting to teach him, like, totally, totally buy it. He, he doesn't really even teach his, like, family. They're, he just orders them around because he's the head chef. He doesn't want to teach them what to do. He's like, no, do this, do yeah. this, do this. You well, know? he would have to. I don't know how uh, they all know exactly what to do with these machines, but... There should have been a scene with like little rat tails in the food. Like all this, this restaurant gets shut because they think the food's delicious, but there's like dead rats on every Yo, plate. The scene, one fell the in, scene the where like he's running around and the scene where he's running around when he first gets in the kitchen, he almost gets like baked. Yeah, with, like, can you a, imagine? Like, a pie or a casserole. It's just like, oh gee. I just immediately imagine like them serving and finding a dead rat in there. Like, oh yeah, that 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 just ends the entire that ends the restaurant right there. It has that Toy Story 2 moment, and we could like keep a tap of these where in the first cut it's much more dire than it is in the second cut i'm talking about when they're in the cones and they're walking across the street and there's that cut where you see they're about to be crushed and then in the second where it cuts and then you see they've got some time good filmmaking Trademark. but Trademark. i yeah. i wonder how many more of these we could find if we watched more pixar movies which i imagine we if we did that you know <laughs> yeah but <laughs> but i do want to hear more um, about the language thing i was bringing up what you were thinking about danny well one thing stuff. i want to say is i get what you're saying but i think it comes back to what you said where like you cut the things that cause questions yeah. because part of me is like at the end like he becomes a waiter and he has roller skates and it's like where did these come from and i'm like you know in like the live action disney remake that over explains everything um he has a whole arc where he wanted to be a rollerblader and he's good <laughs> at rollerblading and at the end he gets to I pull just them out and, work at Sonic and give people food on rollerblades <laughs> Um, well, even in the movie, they establish that he rollerblades when he's out on the deck yeah. with Colette. Oh, it's it's enough. Um, yeah, he rollerblades. But it's not like yeah. it's not like oh yeah, that's no, him achieving that's his enough dream setup. Like no, being that's a rollerblader serving it's food. Everything that you see is used or used again. That's movie making. You want everything to be not used white, no, kind of I, set up and paid off. So but no, you're I, right. I, I the forty-five like, minute longer give, like, Disney live action movie where the mother dies <laughs> of cancer, or plague in a small <laughs> chateau somewhere. Yeah, we get Remy's mom. We get Remy's mom in the opening of the movie. <laughs> it's like oh and it, it turns out she's in the rat the rat traps yeah yeah all right um <laughs> also real side but, note, they really swing those doors open at the end multiple times that i'm pretty sure you get a good view of that kitchen like those doors are swinging wide <laughs> open clear view of all those rats well that's why they had to explain it they had to do the live action remake where they explain why you can't see inside the kitchen right? uh, there's like, a little yeah. veil <laughs> there yeah and yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. uh if we can shift topics i want to talk about colette in this because one part of this like I've never really tracked Colette while watching, and I wasn't really like you know like watching this movie like I want to see what how Colette fits in this story because it's just that now I'm an adult and it's not like she's like oh it's the girl character yeah, you know when you're a kid you're just like oh it's the girl who cares mm-hmm. um, now you're adult you're like all these characters matter I think she has like more I don't know if she really I can really describe her arc to you that she learns anything but I think for some reason to me the part that got me crying a bit before obviously the critic stuff got me crying too 
But when Colette's like, all right, let me, Remy, show me what you got. I was just like, oh, I love that they're actually like working together and respecting each other. Like it got me very emotional. Yeah. That it's like, cause this entire movie, she's like being not, I don't want to say she's off Linguini cause obviously she likes Linguini, but she's like clearly jealous of him. But as soon as like she accepts that there's a rat who's a great cook, she's like, all right, let's work together. Cause we've both like been told we don't belong in this kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I kind of like that a lot. Like I, I, I find it very beautiful and it's very quickly there but it's like ah that's the good stuff right there like that these two are just working together and it's like she immediately respects him once she accepts that i guess a rat can cook yeah. sure no it's a like good moment she even when she's buy, on the bike and she sees it. the book like that's like that makes me smile that's good that's a yeah. little that's a heart tingly moment it's yeah. simple i mean it's obvious but it's like no you need it and it's a good little full circle moment and she comes in at the right time when you need her and um i think she's probably the most interesting human character yeah, she's. I was. Gonna, she really is what drives that more than Linguini for me. Because Linguini is a, in, in a literal sense, a device for Remy yeah. <laughs> to function. Whereas Colette is like an actual, like not really. She's obviously not the antagonist, but she's like giving like Remy a little pull push. And Remy is like, I refuse to respect you. And it's like, okay, like because Linguini's got the points. Like, yeah, Colette does know what she's talking about. It's just, she's also like. I don't know. You know what I mean? I, no, yeah, I, when he's he, trying to, she, he doesn't want to get her right. spices. He's like, no, I know best. There's those scenes, yeah. those little moments where Remy doesn't yeah. respect the other people. They're below him or not as smart as him or whatever, or as good as cooking. I think it's very interesting that I, I think we all agree that she's a great character and she doesn't have an arc. You know, what's up with that? I think she has it's, more of an arc than Linguini, though, is the thing. I think she does have... I, it's something where it's like she is like... She sticks up for Linguini first, saying like, he said anyone can cook. And then she kind of forgets that when she's put in charge of him because she's annoyed at the entire situation. And then at, by the end, she's like, no, you're right. Anyone can cook, yeah. and I need to help others to get to the point where I got. On top of that, she loosely this learns to be more creative. She's a little too, like, stickler to stick to the recipe, I guess. And by the end, she's, like, embracing. It's not, like, explicit, but she's embraced the idea to be more open to change things or do new things or be creative. Or- I. I definitely think that also relates to, like, the fear, right? The fear of being somewhat, like, an outsider in the mm-hmm. kitchen, right? And then she sees, like, Remy's, like, expe- like, Remy's, a, like, because initially, you know, Linguini's just a, a upstart dude. If we, if I, I, I'm going to drop the joke that I, well, it's not really a joke, but I'm sure people have made this joke. He's, like, he's an, uh, Linguini ends up being a Nepo baby, um, <laughs> <laughs> because, the, <laughs> but, uh, so she's like, this is this, this guy who shows up in her kitchen, dude, immediately promoted from garbage boy to cook, and she's put in charge of him. And, yeah. And, like, she's immediately, like, mad about that. But then she's like, oh, wait, I've been, like, helping a rat of all people. Like, like an actual rat. And it's like, what? Like, she, I think she gets to that point where she realizes that if Remy can take risks on her, his recipes, then, I mean, we don't actually get that in the movie, but uh-huh. I think that you're right. She learns that she can do that from Remy. I think that's a little beautiful part because I think she obviously she learns way more from Remy. Well, because she asked, she straight up asked, like, "How would you do it?" You know, because she's he doesn't want to look at a recipe for ratatouille. He kind of wants to make himself, and then she's like, "Oh, oh, ah." Um, Although I will say, I know funny the the frozen food thing. I mean, that's a money maker though. You got one restaurant. How much money you really pulling in from Gusto's from one? I mean. I don't know, a lot of frozen... If you're selling millions of frozen burritos, listen, you may sell out for some. Well, what's good about the frozen food to me varies. It's We're like, not going to sell out. We don't, don't want to sell millions of burritos. Like, I don't know. That's a bad business decision. <laughs> the payoff... 
the payoff of the Gustos, um, like all like having the dumb accents. Yeah. <laughs> the, the office is like that's great. Fantastic. Oh, and they're smart too. I know it's not to be the, but they like avoid doing the Asian because that would have been like a step too far. Like he's there, yeah. he never says anything. They're like jumping, like no, he's Irish. No, he's he can. Be, oh, we can have him be like Latino. Okay, we'll have him do that. Just don't just have him stand there. We don't want yeah. that one. It's crazy that came out in two thousand seven, and that was they had the foresight. To imagine do that, if they you know? did. Imagine if that scene had a little moment. It'd be like, ooh, that's who aged poorly. Because <laughs> we've all accepted, yeah. like, then you can make then fun of once would be like, have the... accent. No one's going to get mad if I go, oh, it would have, it... no and then, the, the, and then, like, everything ever all at once would have, like, this, like, narrative. It's like, oh, we're racially reclaiming Ratatouille. <laughs> like, like, they would have that entire thing <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about the elephant in the room, I think, which we're all kind of mentioning, is that Remy is such an ass <laughs> and he is not redeemed. I, I gotta say, watching it, I don't really care. But like, I put it out to I mean, all of you. Why don't we care? I think I think we don't care because I think all three of us would say we are on the artistic side of things. Um, so I think we can all relate to Remy, all three of us. But I know, like, there's a couple friends I know who hate this movie, and it is because what you say, he is an asshole. It's like he, he's a pretentious snob, and like he does not. Like, I don't care what he's saying about food. That's not food words. I'm like, no, because the, the, that to me is like, you're refusing to engage with the premise of these uh, sure. high dining. Like, you know, like, you, you can't be like, oh, he's too, he's, he's just, it's the world he wants to be in. So, like, he's acting the way he should. Yes, he's, he's an asshole, but like, he wanted to become a cook and they made him a poison tester because he sh- showed he was good at it. <laughs> like, I think every, like, every, his lashing out is like, when we see his family life, even though he's like, yeah, I still love my family, but it's like he he's not allowed to like do what he wants to do when he's with his family. I think Linguini becomes an asshole too, and it's like I think Remy. I I think it's very the movie's very smart that whenever Remy's becoming a bit too much of an asshole, it's like here's Skinner or here's Linguini becoming a huge dick. <laughs> it's like I don't think he's ever. I think there are points, but I don't think he's ever consistently the biggest jerk on screen. Yeah, you're right. He doesn't have an arc, and I guess he's kind of a jerk. But a couple things of that is. I mean, A, the cute rat, you want to follow him, but it's kind of part of the, you attach him because he's an outsider, right? Like, even though he's a rat, it's a placeholder for any person who feels outside or minority or feels that they can't, you know, get ahead or anything. Like Colette, like Colette relates to him. Exactly. So I feel like anyone can watch that, and especially as a kid, right, they attach themselves to that. And it's easy to look over that sense because he's passionate about it, and you know he's so skilled, and you know he comes from the bottom if you will because he's like the, he's a rat and he has there's no cape there's a zero percent chance he can achieve this so there's that natural sense of like rooting for an underdog even if he is kind of an asshole um and then side note going on a deeper level, like a filmmaking perspective this is my belief this is how i made even like my movie northwood pie like you know the main character in my movie is the weakest character movie and i and i know we knew that the whole time writing and everything and it's just it's like it was always that way and they're like how do you know he's a lead and i've always just said there's a certain point in a movie where people just know to attach and it's like if i have this character and I make sure it's from his perspective. I just have him go to this many scenes in this order and this right amount of pace. You're just going to be like, that's, that's the person I follow. And I can have a movie and I can open it and I can have someone murder 45 good human beings, innocent people. And yet I can have a scene five minutes later where I'm scared for his life because he's getting chased because the tension. And it's just a weird thing that like our minds, the way we work when we watch things and how we just attach to we see that close up and we see their point of view and we're them. And if you can, ex- ex- you know, do a movie, right. You put yourself in whoever shoes that is, whether they're an asshole, a good person, a bad person, and you can enjoy it. And if it's a bad movie, 
then yes, the, the, that's one of the big reasons it doesn't work. But it shows that you can make a good movie without having a good arc, without having a good a, a great character. Because you're right, if you think about it, he is kind of a dick. I never really thought about that too much. And you could make a, maybe a better version where he has a better arc or something, but the movie works so well that you don't necessarily I, think about it too I often. Think, I, mean, some though, people know, do, I hate to be like, well, the thing about him being a dick is like, it's realistic. And like that part of it's really like, okay, yeah, sure. And the thing is, is the arc is more... Maybe, maybe I don't want to say I'm speaking for everyone here, but I think it's a pretty universal feeling with animated movies in general and movies in general that what like this movie is at its heart kind of about daddy issues, right? Like dad doesn't dad doesn't understand what son wants to become, like and like you know How to Train Your Dragon does that too. Um, it's a it's a like it's a very standard animation trope, but also it's like I'm thinking even this year with like the Fablemans, right? Dad, dad doesn't understand what little Sammy wants to do with his life. And I watch The Fablemans, and I watch this, and I think about, you know, like, my own relationship with my dad. And I've been like, ah, I want to do this thing. And, you know, or, or my mom, parents in general, you know, being like, I want to do this thing. They're like, yeah, but that's not going to be good for you. That's not going to help you make money. And it's just like, great, thanks. Like, thanks for the support. And I think that is, like, your gateway with Remy. It's like, because dad's like, that's dumb. Brother's like, I'm trying to understand, but I still don't really get what you're doing. And then he finally finds himself in a world where he can just do what he wants to do. And that gives him a freedom that is completely, like, new and exciting to him. And I think that is... In, but the thing is, you don't still don't want to lose your family. So it's like, the arc, in a way, doesn't need to be Remy's. It needs to be the people around him understanding how much he loves what he loves. Yeah, I would, I would second that. Maybe you're implying this, Danny, but so much of the movie works because I find Django and... I actually find Skinner 2 to be pretty compelling. We've kind of talked about this. Their motivations make a lot of sense. And it is like, well, if you want Remy to not be an asshole, you kind of got to write a different movie because his antagonists just make so much sense. And it seems like, you know, he kind of, he doesn't need to be an asshole, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need to change. He, he needs um, to be. He needs to be validated because then he can stop being a jerk because he won't feel like he needs to prove himself. Well, Luigi's all. Yeah. <laughs> Linguini's also a good guy too, and if he's a good guy, there needs to be conflict without there. It's Disney without being like extreme conflict. So they have to have just that natural personality bump kind of thing that kind of toes the line. So if Remy was nice, there, you know, they wouldn't really be able to have so much of a. Twist. Maybe they made this him nicer. Luigi really like was the... meaner. It just then people didn't care about the human character and didn't want to root for Luigi to get the restaurant and do all that stuff. So they had to make him as nice as possible. And then that, in return, in the filmmaking, well, they had to tone well, down and make the rat a little more mean. I could see that happening. Again, though, Linguini is still just used as really a, as a, 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 I like using the term story device because he is a device for Remy, but like he's a tool for Remy. Because yeah. when Linguini gets the restaurant, that effectively means Remy has the restaurant, yeah, right? Right, yeah. Because exactly. Remy's the cook. Uh, I do think Remy cares about Linguini. Like, like he trusts him. He he respects him as a person. He's like, he, he's a little annoyed with some things about him, but like everyone gets a little annoyed when you have like a business partner like that. Yeah. Um, but no, now that I think about it, because at the end he's coming back for himself. It's you know, and it, yeah. I guess you could have made it. There could have been a moment or somehow build it where when he comes back, he does something for Linguini, or he's coming back because he needs for his friendship, and Linguini needs him to do this. Like there could have been a way to phrase it somehow that makes ties it in more strong that way because it, it is really just like. He is going back to help his friend, but it's like, is he? I don't like to use the word irrational, but I do feel like, like we said earlier, it's one of the strengths of this film is that the plot just kind of moves. And if you if you think about it, it's like, well, how did they reason this out? You know, and 
but it is it is like well it's you wanted to go back and help his friend uh, but the thing it. is he doesn't even he doesn't even want to come back he wants to prove to Antoniego that he's not just like a hot shot you know like yeah. it's really like yeah I, it's my it's my I need to win I need to beat this guy kind of and he even wants he, to like restore Gusto's um, legacy I mean I guess there was a there is it's funny because the ending is so good but if you think about it I guess there could have been even a, a better moment of like I have to do this not only for myself but for Linguini and for Gusto and for that but it's really just for himself kind of we didn't really talk about Anton Ego yet. Like, you know, we, we definitely, like, here's when he shows up. Here's He's hard his to role. talk about. He's not in the movie. <laughs> he shows I mean, up. He's I, got I his own agenda at the end that has very little to do with explicitly well, Remy becoming I a like, chef and all that. One thing I do on this show is I always call, and I know I mentioned another line earlier, but I always call it the most, like, quoted line of this movie. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you repeat, you, repeat, you repeat lines from the movies, you see. And I always go, I, I still to this day go, I don't like it. I know. I, I don't like food. I love it. If I don't love it, I don't swallow it. Like, Which already, some very, it's like, like, wait a second, wait a second. If you don't swallow your food, how can you judge the aftertaste? How can you tell how it sits in your throat? You sound like a pretty bad critic. <laughs> Which is why, I'm, as a maker, it's like hard to trust. Critics, man, whew, you guys really need to learn a couple notches. I mean, come on, swallow I was at, saying, least, at least one swallow. I, mean, <laughs> I was saying to Jay before he came on that Ratatouille was a good pick because I think I definitely identify way more as a film critic than as a filmmaker nowadays. Maybe when I was in college, I made movies a little bit, but I was really more like, you know, I, I enjoyed making plays more and I enjoy watching movies and reviewing movies. So this is, this is our dynamic. Me and Jay is like, I, I'm the critic here. Uh, you are the filmmaker, and Mark's like, oh, I'm an actor. How, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that you gave me a voice, so it's like, yeah, hey, Mark's here, you know, fucking whatever he does. I'm just teasing about the ego thing, though. It works for the movie. It's a great line. And I, you would never change no, that. It's just fun to dissect and say, like, hey, seriously, that. But I like this movie, too, for that reason. Mm -hmm. It's like, I actually always, to me, relate filmmaking to cooking the most. Like, when I have to relate it to a profession or I, anything, I always relate it to being a chef, being a director a lot of times, and in the balance of objectivity and subjectivity, I think food is a really good way to do things because things are subjective, but they're also clearly objective. Like if this if two, one cook steak is cooked medium rare and is pink throughout and one steak is, is burnt and there's no, there's no pink throughout. One is cooked longer. One is cooked more like your taste can be subjective. Like you can subjectively have a thing, but if one person says, I like this more because it's medium. You can't say like, no, it's not medium. No, I mean, you can like it less because you, li you like you no know, pink. That's fine. But it doesn't change the objectiveness of that core thing in a way. And again, everything's fully subjective when you because there's so many millions of points and they all come together and we all have different taste buds and different point of views. But in some way, there is some level of, of hierarchy of what's good, what's bad, and criticism. It's, it just it somehow feels similar to me, and I've always kind of related it. And maybe it's because I've always enjoyed cooking shows and enjoyed chefs and enjoyed food, but I've always kind of looked at that and compared that medium, I guess, and how people talk about it and discuss it, uh, similar to filmmaking. So I've, I've always found that connection there. It's really funny for Pixar to do like a movie that's commentarying on like film critics that are cynical because it's like, dude, your movies are always loved. Yeah. You know, at this point, it's like, <laughs> like, and Brad Bird is only not Pixar, like Pixar thing is Iron Giant, another like universally beloved film. So yeah. at this point, at least. So it's like the idea of like coming here and be like, yeah, these critics, right? But I don't think Anton is that. And I think there is a... Even though I know you made the joke, about, and it is a joke, you said it was a joke, but it's like, I think Anton is like very much like, he's a scary critic. But it's like, more like me he, and how Ben tough, I'm the toughest one in terms of letterbox grading. If anything, yeah. I feel like him personally inside. <laughs> <laughs> Except I actually do enjoy everything. But like, 
I think one line that always resonates with him in his speech, and there's so many lines that resonate, but where he goes like, it's, um, I, I can't, I don't remember the exact, I, I'm like, this line's great, I don't remember the exact line, but it's like, um, negative criticism, which is fun to, uh, it's like, easy to write and fun to read or something like that. Fun to that. write and fun to and read. And I'm like, you know, the, oh, it's yeah, such a good, it's so good. Yeah, so and good I was like, you know, the other day I saw, I watched the Oscar shorts, because I always do that. And there was one documentary that I hated. And I was, like, so proud of my final line. I kept sending it to people. I was, like, and I was, I was just, like, dang. I, I maybe, I, like, it is fun to write. And it was, like, my line, by the way, was, like, uh, you know, I feel like I could have just controlled F Wikipedia, her Wikipedia page and learned way more about her than this documentary taught me. <laughs> like, I was, like, ooh, that's good. Um, but I'm, like, well, the entire final speech, you know, it's, it's wonderful. Like, obviously. We, we've said that multiple. Like, it, it, it's just a really beautiful take on, like, because, you know, people nowadays, you see all this discourse everywhere. It's like, oh, critics are getting paid off. Or like, oh, critics put the hit on Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum so This is funny you because know? critics have never been nicer and easier to please than now, which is the funniest thing when people get mad about stuff because every movie gets great reviews. 47% for Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum mania is a very high Rotten Tomatoes score for Again, the movies like The Mummy were getting 53% in 1999 when they came out. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest yeah. got like a 49 or something. It's like, relax, people. Or like, you know, like how there was like a bunch of critics who put out like their favorite movies of last year, right? And everyone's like, oh, not everyone, but like there's an entire contingent like, no, everything ever all at once, throw that list out. And it's just like, what what happened where we're like, we, we look to critics now to validate our takes instead of just like actually give us like give us some good writing, you know? That's really it. It's like I, I'm more excited when like a writer I like gives a positive review to something I hated or a, a negative review to something like I like. And so I can read their opinion on it and be like, okay, I see where you're coming from. Or like, that's an interesting point to make. Mm -hmm. I think Anton Ego is given like the respect. It's not like say, and I think you like this movie that I'm about to mention. It's not like in Birdman where like the critic shows up and like Michael Keaton yells at the critic for being a piece of shit for five minutes. And then like the critic leaves. Mm -hmm. It's like this movie's like, nah, like the critics have their place in consuming art. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it makes an interesting point. My favorite thing about the critic thing, actually, is the speech. Is, it's nice and contite, movie-perfect writing. But he talks about how, you know, from our job is easy, and sometimes we have this place where we're, we put ourselves above people who, like, work so hard and do this stuff to provide that. At the end of the day, what we do is meaningless. And I like what he said that because it's true in a way, right? And just like anything he makes meaningless. But then he shifts it into the perfect sense of what the importance of, critics, of a critic and stuff like that because then he goes into – their job sometimes is to champion and to highlight lesser known and to see that. And that's yes. part of And so it's, he, he's able to like say that perfect dichotomy. Like, yes, sometimes we can be too much of that's, this, but we're that's also why I always, like, important thing to like let people see things that other people wouldn't notice. And we actually make people successful or good or bring them to light or stuff like that. So I thought it was a really, it's just what, really perfectly written. That entire sequence, you know, like with him waiting for, like from him tasting the Ratatouille, it's like my eyes are watered. I'm not full cry yet. But then when he goes like, we champion the new. That's when I just like, ah, like it all just starts coming out like a lot where it's like, yes, that's exactly like, what like this because you know that that's the point where like you're watching and you're like the whole movie makes sense right because of course remy like he is a new chef of course colette like like that that to me is like the 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 thing i mentioned earlier where colette and remy are working together mm -hmm. it's like they're working together to make something new to chefs because she says like women chef aren't allowed in the kitchen much in this high dining in the world and obviously a rat is not allowed in the kitchen in a high dining world and yet they work together to make something that 
completely wows the toughest critic ever yeah. because they remember that like what really matters ultimately with anything is really like this podcast is called looking for the ocean because of a quote from soul but we've talked more about what i've called the ratatouille moment on this show where we watch these movies and revisit these movies to remember stuff from our lives Mm -hmm. and like moments where it's like um we're like you know we taste the ratatouille yeah and we get Um, sent back to our childhood or whatever sure yeah we get sent back to our child we get sent back to um like maybe traumatic moments but like in a good sense where it's Mm -hmm. like oh yeah this movie's letting me process that and like that entire thing where he's like, we champion the new, we champion what hits us. And it's like, yes, like, thank you. <laughs> like, thank you. Like, it, yeah. It's not even just about criticism. It's about, like, the role of art in life in general. Yeah. Like, you don't have to be a critic to understand what he's saying and mm-hmm. go along with it. I just think it's beautiful. Like, we all agree. Yeah. It's, beautiful. it's hard to <laughs> think of something that's not like, you know, Roger Ebert writing about it or whatever. It's hard to think of another piece of media that has influenced my view of criticism as much i'm maybe a lot of people are like that is like that monologue kind of sums up everything you know and and we were introduced to it from a pixar movie i remember at the time although i again i was a kid so i guess i don't really can't really be like oh yeah this was definitely serious but i remember like you know I'm on I'm on my internet I'm on TV.com on Toonzone.net you know like on all the weird like spots you start in the internet in t- when you're 12 years old um and i remember people being like Disney might put together a supporting actor campaign for Peter O'Toole because of that speech. And I'm now I'm like, no way that actually, I don't, I, I wasn't there for, I, I can't, I, but like, I also, I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of get it because it's he never won. And like that speech is so good. Yeah. It's a difficult, it's a difficult speech too. Cause I, I, you know, probably not difficult for Peter O'Toole or, you know, sit down, you figure it out. But like the rest of the film, you kind of have to make some leaps from sentence to sentence, I think I think I re- paused and rewatched it once because it's like the moment that he shifts from the joke about fun to write and fun to read, and then he has to switch to, but but there does come a time when a, a critic has to stand up for what is right, and he has to like recontextualize what he's just said which is so light and breezy, but you mm-hmm. realize it, it's all, you know, been like foundation. I- incredible delivery. The weird example, but like, you know, Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glen Ross. The difference between Glengarry and Glen Ross is here is that the rest of Ratatouille is really... I I, think Glengarry, I, I don't hate Glengarry and Glen Ross, but I think it's... I think Ratatouille is a better movie. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I don't hate Glengarry. I think it's fine. Um, but this is just like... It blows away everything you've seen beforehand, and like everything beforehand has been incredibly, incredibly yeah. good. You know, it's always so good to end on a like, strong whoa. note. That's for sure. Um, but I want to talk about a couple things before we're running time. Like, I want to talk about the action set pieces, which is in a, it's in a, it's a yeah. animated film. But like the two major ones yeah. that I think about, just they're just so fun and well directed. I mean, the one where obviously the first one where he's in the kitchen, and they made a ride off of that. If you've been on the, to Disneyland Paris or the Epcot, they have it now, and I, I went on it and. It, you know, when he's running through the kitchen, does such a good job of like just the way he was climbing up and down, and he almost makes it. Then he gets that's such a cool idea there. to make that a ride. Like you know, I I wouldn't think of it immediately to be like a ride, but it like that makes to- like you know, like, once you say it, it's like yeah, yeah. okay, like, no, because you're the yeah. size Sorry, of mouse, and you go to the screen, <laughs> and then you get under, you go into the like kitchen, and all the fr- all the things are massive size and look big and scale, and then you get you get like swept yeah. and pushed underneath like an oven, and the oven and it gets warm, you know. So it's a pretty fun little ride, but that whole sequence is like super well directed and the clarity of where you are in the kitchen yeah. and going around is really impressive and then the other little bit bit 
where he has the the notes in his hand. Like just that whole sequence is so great. And I love watching movies and like keeping notes like this time too of checking off shots that I'm a thousand percent going to steal. Like it's such a simple shot, but there's that shot where what is the the, the, the guy's name of the first chef, the chef who was the sous chef to Gusteau, who's the villain of the movie? Oh, Skinner. 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 So Skinner, there's it's yeah. like it's his hand and he's almost about to grab like Remy. He's like reaching for Remy for the thing. And then oh, I know where yeah, yeah, yeah he falls flips. down the stairs and the steps and they appear. And I'm like, oh, I want to do that shot in live action. <laughs> like if I did a Bond movie or Indiana Jones, whatever, I'm going to rip off that moment where the villain, I'm going to make sure you get his point of view. The, the, the henchman's reaching for something and then, oh, he goes off a cliff or he goes off the edge of a building and I'm going to have, the, I'm going to literally do the same gag. And I just love oh, watching yeah. movies and like I pull out my phone and I go, okay, add to my, I have a list of like, different movies i'm like writing or stuff and i have like adventure movie or action movie and i just write down like little gags because you know every gag you see in a movie has been done another gag 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 10 years ago and no one's gonna remember yeah. no one's gonna watch that and be like oh and if someone does it'll just trend on twitter in a good way and people be like look he copied ratatouille <laughs> can i ask you maybe an obvious question with an obvious answer have you seen the every frame of painting about satoshi Kone? not seen. i've only seen a couple of every frame of painting i should watch the rest of them Oh, well, you're, you, you live in an idyllic world. Um, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, they're actually terrible. <laughs> well, no, 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 they're not actually terrible. I think he, he opened a can of worms, which, you know, set the oh, internet yeah. on fire. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I mean, it was way really too many video first... essays, I think, hmm. now. Yeah, but that's the whole different thing. Anyway, he has a video where he talks about, like, the possibilities of animation editing. I feel like a young filmmaker has to come up a, a lot of with against that is that you watch a lot of things from animation you want to take to live action which are actually kind of you know difficult i would be curious to see how you could do something like that because the thesis of that video that i'm quoting is that the eye processes things easier in animation and so cuts that are jarring like that are much easier but i don't i don't know what what you think about that you know that specific beat i know i can do in live action but there's a lot of stuff in general when you watch the movie that's why again animation is so perfect and so tough with live action stuff like tonally is like just the beginning just when remy tastes food and you zoom out and or you not zoom out you fade into like his own little perspective where it's a black world and you see colors stuff, like yeah that's so hard to, to, to do live action and the music hits it and too. to be oh. able to just transition yeah. your perspective like that is so fucking difficult and you can imagine nine out of ten directors it'd be it'd be so hard even the best director could fail at just trying to articulate that moment but in animation you can it's still hard but you can do stuff like that that i think that's the type of stuff that's really hard to translate but i think little action beats and stuff there's ways to reframe things or rejuggle things or shoot things in certain uh you know certain perspectives or certain lenses and stuff like that like that little gag where he goes off i can do but the stuff where he tastes flavors and stuff that's another question i wouldn't try that and there's a few other things like even zooming into ego's eye i mean pulling that off if you wanted to do that in live act you'd have to do it completely different you'd have to do like he'd put his fork down and you just cut to him as a kid or something you'd have to it would be hard to do some type of stylistic transition and not because if it doesn't I'm work curious. it's like cheesy right and then it takes you out the movie and that's the risk you're at i'm curious jay because i know you watch these all way more like like paying attention to like the shots that I do and I'm sure you've watched them all in a row but have you ever watched um because I know you wanted to come up for this one too but I already have my parents book for it spoiler alert for our guests um but for Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol I'm curious do you notice that Brad Bird like lifted any of like his animation shots either from this or the Incredibles and like tried to pull them off in live action there you know, I actually... Or have you just not done that? I've never analyzed directly Brad Bird's connection to that. I've usually just compared the 
movies themselves, like the missions. Because he has the live action works, like you know? Um, I mean, I feel like there's similarities there. And I think that in the way he moves the camera, it's it, it, he does move the camera similarly. I can't spell specific shots, but he has this flowiness to his camera. Like if you watch Ghost Protocol, yeah. he doesn't do like Chris McCoy stuff. He's a little more angular with his shots and if he does do stuff there's a lot more blocking readjustments or like a pan or adjustment or something but he's really like you don't notice the camera moves the camera's not the is never the star of it the, the moves are very fluid and simple and guided and usually there's like one blocking move in it but it's not showy he's never trying to be like you know oh there was four shots in one and you notice it it's just one simple kind yeah. of and i think he learned that from animation coming in because it's it's a very stickler but see i could talk all day about comparing ghost protocol though to some of the other ones because it's interesting i won't go into too much but chris mcquarrie wrote four and directed five and if you look at the structure of those movies and directing you can really compare some things and this is why actually brad bird's a great director and i love ghost protocol uh, I'll stop. I can go on like a whole five minute tangent comparing these two scenes that are the same. You can, scene go, on a, you can go on a tangent because. Uh, All right, I'll do it a quick little tangent. Are you okay? If I'm going? Um, in four, yeah, you can, you're allowed to unless Mark's like no. in Mission Impossible <laughs> Four and Five. It's good. It's, we can't like bring you back on for the parent episode, which would be very funny. <laughs> no, you should you should tell it now. You're talking to my uh, parents. It's just like no, here's how it goes. It's a quick Sorry, like, go on, go. but something as a filmmaker, like I analyze. But you know, so in Mission Impossible Four, there's that in Five, they had the same point at the same story. But I can put it up on Letterbox, but I won't do it exactly because runtimes but at the end of the first it's like elongated first act almost basically but it's actually the start of the second where they jump from location to location so in this fourth movie they jump to dubai or abu dhabi and in the fifth mm-hmm. movie they go to morocco and both those scenes before are the same so like it one happens at 49 minutes and one happens at 48 in the story so at the same point in the story structure and pacing wise do they happen it's the same script and both scenes and one of them they go to a train so and it's an imf hideout where they learn stuff yeah. and the other one it's a boat and after those scenes, they cut to, a, you know, a desert landscape and transition shots and stuff. But I compared yeah. it side by side, not a knock on Chris McQuarrie, but why four is so good is if you look at the beat to get out of five, it's the simple like Morocco. And then Tom Cruise says that with a little like joke. And then you cut and you get the beautiful landscape of Morocco. But in Mission Impossible 4, they do this great little tag on where they're literally grabbing every single piece of equipment they're going to use in that next set piece. So it's already setting something up. Mm-hmm. And even if something is the gloves, they grab the goggles that they're going to use later for the for the sandstorm. So it's just a little bit extra there. And then on top of that, when you cut back into the transitions of the foreign landscape in Morocco, you cut, you get three or four establishing shots of Morocco and it fades out. But what they do so brilliantly in four, it's he does the Jurassic Park effect where he's able to wow you twice and it takes twice as long. He wows you. You go, wow, look at the desert and you show them driving for four shots. And then you cut inside the car and you have a fun little gag where they avoid the camel. They smile. And then he wows you again because now the music, the music was up. It went down. They played a gag. And then it went back up for you approaching the Dubai building, the tallest building in the world. Which like Jurassic Park, you know, you wow at the island, then you go in, you do a little joke with the helicopter with the seatbelt, and then you wow again. The music comes up when the when the waterfall comes. Small thing, I know it's a little thing, but both those beats side by side, one takes twice as long, and yet you're more engaged. And I think that it has more setup, more payoff, more that. And I think that you can do that for a lot of scenes. I know it's not really relatable, but that just shows how I see movies and when I go back and rewatch things. Because if you just watch something two months later, three months later, not think about that. But when you watch them the same day or you stop or you look at the runtime and you analyze, yeah. you start noticing things like that. And you see objectivities. That doesn't mean one movie better than the other. But you can point out why that one moment maybe works for you more or why you can find that. And 
when I find an objective thing or something like that, it doesn't necessarily it holds, but my opinion can still change. Like my Batman opinions and Christopher Nolan Batman's have swapped completely. What I used to think was one, two, and three. Now I have the opposite order. But the things I've noticed, even when I had other opinions, haven't changed. But I've just because I know, oh, that part's better. It helps me find out something else. Like now I'm looking from a different perspective. Like maybe I'm looking too hard from an editing perspective. And now the next time I watch it, I'm watching from a script perspective. And I notice all these other objective positives for another movie. Anyway, sorry for going on a tangent Mission Impossible, but I just love that correlation between four and five because they're the same exact beat. And I think that shows like what directing can do and how much, you know, how because the script could be the exact same for both those moments. Sorry. And that's probably boring most audiences, but there's hopefully one person that finds it interesting. I think it's I, interesting. Well, yeah, we, we <laughs> find it interesting. That's what's important. Listeners, um, nah, I don't care about that. No, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, I think we. The one time someone was a listener and they came on, it was Caleb, and he said he liked our Femtober episodes. So I, the vocal members of our audience, like the technical talk. Did you have some? Did you have another thing that was on your mind, Jay? Oh, I just want to talk about the score again because I know every time, every time I go on a podcast, talk about any movie, even when I did it, every once in a while, like I always, you always forget the music. You want to talk about it so much, and you want to be the last thing you talk about. I always forget. I didn't want to forget because it's amazing, and I feel like I cry because of the music sometimes. I mean, we forget how much the score drives movies and our emotion, and it's like sometimes I forget. Like, is the movie good or is the music just so good? Like, is Steven Spielberg my favorite filmmaker or is John Williams swells the the way the music swells at the end like the epilogue in the restaurant where he's like surprise me it's like oh that's that's beautiful in a way actually the ending of this weirdly like musically even though obviously they're completely different tracks but the role for michael Giacchino it reminds me of how coco always just makes me cry at the end because of the music that's playing it's not doesn't really have to do with what i'm singing on screen it's just like the song miguel is singing is like so happy i'm like ah they earned this they work so hard for this and they're all happy now and i'm so happy that they're happy and that's how i feel like when the music like you get the the choral tr- it's not a choral track but you know like the um the vocal yeah. track on the final song it's like ah yeah this is so nice it's like restaurant music and they they really made this restaurant with the rat on the thing so ah it's just so nice you know like yeah i agree yeah. the score is phenomenal i i think i get you know more recently has not been as um impressing me as he has like with like you know yeah. revisiting incredibles and now well, when you do six movies a year um, six shows like that's the problem i mean you we go from doing two things a year or three things a year to doing six or seven or eight you know it's like the hans zimmer yeah. effect not a negative these guys just become too sought after and i get it like if i was doing a blockbuster on the top of my head i mean maybe there's people who do more but there's only three people i'm like fully confident in that i would sign on without hearing anything that you know you know it's like oh i want hans zimmer i want alan Silvestri, and i want michael giacchino and if you can't get those three it's like hmm let me think for a second where's, where's my boy john powell oh, sorry <laughs> i give john powell <laughs> no 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 i'm sorry no but there, there's obviously more than that but you get my point yeah i get what you're like saying a, no i know i know what you're saying top tier you know to be honest on who you would reach out for. i used to remember though like <sighs> I remember, obviously, Marvel scores are never, like, particularly great unless, you know, like, there's his some Doctor exceptions. Doctor Strange score is good, s- to be honest. I actually like his main theme a lot. Which one? Doctor Strange. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not actually talking about, well, I've ranted before about how I hate the No Way Home score, but that's not, I'm actually not talking about Giacchino here. But I am. Thor, Love and Thunder have a lot has a lot of issues, but I remember I got so mad when they announced Michael Giacchino was going to do the score for it, because I was like, what the heck? You had Mar- Mark Moversberg on Ragnarok, which... Even if you don't think that score is great, it's obviously going to be better than Michael Giacchino giving you like another. Mar- the, they should have just kept Patrick Doyle for all like of them. I mean, come on. This, well, yeah, yeah, sure. They should have like yeah. You know, I get I get Moversberg for the third one because it's like going for that weird like eighties vibe. Even if pulls it off, that's up to you. We're not no, no, it's a different. He's going for an eighties set. That's okay. It's a different. You need something different for your movie. Yeah, something different. Yeah. 
But if you're going to go back for, like, the classical vibe for Love and Thunder, yeah, just get called Patrick Doyle. Like, you know, like, he, he did it. You you sampled his track at the end of the last one. I like, did Harry Potter, for God's sakes. He yeah. did a Harry Potter movie. I mean, he knows yeah. what Yeah, but, yeah, I agree. Giacchino's spread too thin these days. I think the only times I am really expre- impressed by him nowadays is, like, the Pixar stuff. And I, I did like his Batman and uh, Planet of the Apes scores, but that's... I think it's, he's yeah. always like, the thing Even, is, it's, it's less like, like, there's always a good theme in there, but it's more about the as a whole, yeah. right? As let me just earlier stuff, it's almost like every theme in the movie is a banger versus like now he has one really good theme or two good themes in a movie and the rest feel like yeah. kind of filler. Because he did actually, he did the Lightyear score, which to me is, they had a good name theme, but I can't tell you anything else that was mm-hmm. in that score. And the only reason I think that theme was really good is because it was like in an ad that they played in like the movie theater lobby. So I kept hearing it. I got to like, re-listen to it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's good. He also um, does the theme for the Space theme. Mountain, by the way. Sorry. The Space Mountain in California is time to Michael oh, cool. Giacchino custom music. And it's, oh, it's amazing. It's like my, it's like his best. Well, am I wrong that Ratatouille's score is mostly variations on the song, but it's sort of mm-hmm. the way I think of it is like that song arranged as the Incredibles score. I like the Ratatouille score, and I think it's much better than Cars, where you have this extremely jarring shift to from, maybe it's not fair, because it's like well-known country songs and then orchestral stuff, but surely we could compare that to like Finding Nemo, and you, Finding Nemo Finding is like Nemo's such course. a rich score, oh, but I, love I don't know, I mean, I, I, it's, the, the score is kind of like the whole of Ratatouille, where if you take most of it it's kind of like oh this is all right and then has sure. one thing that is amazing about it that colors the rest of the film and i do i yeah, like well. the ratatouille score but that would be my thing is like i'm curious because oh, well, i'm not really a guy score i'm not really a guy who listens to scores like on their own right but i'm curious if what you're saying cause, yeah that's the only stuff that stands out but i remember with coco right I, when Coco came out, I was like, the the songs in it are so good, but the score is it's it's a it's a Giacchino score nowadays. Whatever, you know, like it's fine. And then there was a day I just sat down and actually listened to the score of Coco, and I'm like, oh no, he's like doing a lot of like interesting themes here. Yeah. It's just like obviously this movie is more paying attention to like the singing because it's a movie about singing and playing guitar. But it's like no, there's a lot of cool. And I'm curious if like I sat down and listened to that two score because I my gut feeling is you're right, mm-hmm. right? But like I've noticed that with his Pixar score, like. With his good Pixar movie scores, I, I do think Lightyear. I think Cars two. Like I don't think those really probably have hidden gems in yeah. there. But like, I maybe there's like some good stuff in here that you might not necessarily think. Like maybe the the, the music that plays when they're at the rat shop mm-hmm. is really good, right? Like I don't know. Or like the like you're saying like the like I we're, I mentioned this briefly earlier when you talked about the abstract like food stuff. Like the music that's playing during that is good. It's like a nice little like freeform jazz in the middle of it. And it's like no, it's like it's but. Yes, obviously the main theme is really great. Right? Yeah. That's what we're talking about, really. We're saying, I oh. think sometimes when I watch, as someone who listens to scores a lot, it's like when you go to a concert, like you want to hear new stuff, and as much as, even if a song's overplayed, there's an extra level of excitement when you know the song, right? There's a reason, like I used to DJ at the club, actually, and, you know, there's a reason a lot of times I learned too, so you don't want to DJ too fast through songs because the audience actually, like a movie sometimes, they want to hear it twice. If you play a song, the audience doesn't know, like a, a, a dance song, and the drop comes the first time. It's like boom, 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 whatever it is, right? It drops. People go, oh yeah, and they dance. But if they enjoy it and they really like that, if you when you build it up longer the second time, and they expect and know that's the sound they're gonna hear, they actually go crazier when they know that sound. Yeah. So it's that same thing listening to a score where sometimes, and I found this a lot where. 
I feel like I have to listen to the movie soundtrack separately. You hear the detail. And then once I, if I really do like it and watch the movie, then it sticks out. Because if not, the movie's just it's being of service to the film. It's like servicing it. But when you know what the sound is, when you know what the cues are, and when you hear it, things become greater to you. Like, And not this is for everything, but like Rogue One, still not the greatest score. And we're being disappointed by it. But ha- now having listened to it on its own multiple times through... I've enjoyed the music for what it is and heard the musicality in a way that I didn't expect because I was in my car listening to it. So now when I hear it in the movie, I like it more, which in return makes me like the scene more, which in return makes me like the movie more. So there's that extra like connection to it that I think when you listen to something separately, if it stands on its own, it then increases the movie and you can somehow see it. So you're right, though. I think sometimes you kind of only can hear the main theme unless you go listen to it more. And then once you notice all the stuff going on, because not everything's as explicit as John Williams. I mean, that's why John Williams is the best. I mean, every movie you see, it's like yeah. every character's got their own theme and it's memorable and you can hum it. I mean, I could sit here and we can hum 15 different Star Wars themes and it's, you know, it is what it is. I was just going to make this really quick comment where I think one thing, I think with soundtracks, because I remember, I haven't rewatched Baby Driver since the first week it came out. I really should revisit it just as someone who like is following Edgar Wright's career. Was very disappointed last night in Soho, but whatever, you know, like we'll, we'll, we'll give him a mulligan. Because I was like, Baby Driver, I was like, it's okay. But one of my weird complaints of it is like, I felt like it used too many deep cuts to be fun. But now, since then, I've listened to those song, like that soundtrack a lot. I'm curious if I ever revisit it. I probably enjoy it way more. Because now I know these songs. Because like the whole appeal of that movie is like, we're editing these action sequences to these famous yeah. songs. And I was like, yeah, but like, besides Tequila and um, I think it's Brighton Rock, like this movie really just uses deep cuts to me. And it's like, that's not what I'm here for. People um, react to that. Even but, Top Gun, the new Top Gun, then they were talking about it. It was only a month before they picked that. I'm not good with music, but the opening training montage, that famous rock song that's like, dun, 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 right? Or how's it? Anyways. Basically, they for the longest time, they had a, an unreleased Rolling Stones song. And it was good and it matched. But end of the day, they said that they basically came to the conclusion that there's extra energy when people like the song already. They're not like, oh, what song is this? Yeah. Oh, and they're watching. They're trying to understand the song and understand the scene. And they're trying to think about, oh, I've never heard this song. Versus like, this is a song everyone, they hear it. They go, oh, that song. I like that song. And they watch the movie versus the opposite. So it's just an interesting little thing of our subconscious works. Talking about scores is I just rewatched the first. Well, I rewatched the first two Creeds, but I'm only going to talk about the first one. But like that moment when the Rocky theme finally hits in the first Creed after it's held it back for the entire movie is just like, yeah, like there's no better way to do that. Like, you know, like giving you that finally. But I watched that clip like three hours ago because I think we probably saw the same people online talking about it. It's kind of weird out of context of the whole film. Because it's they don't dwell on it, which surprised me. It's been a while since I've watched Creed altogether, but it's very really clever. Oh, Creed is so good. Creed is. I love Creed. Creed. Creed is like one of those. Like sometimes I like. Maybe I did give this movie five stars too quickly, but and I didn't give Creed five stars on the first watch. And I'm like, no, like that's a movie I I'm totally okay with defending from everyone who says that's too high for me. I like that is a movie that I can watch and like get chills every single damn time I watch that movie and like cry when he goes like. I just want to prove I'm not a mistake. I'm just like, oh, it gets me every single time. Anyway, um, this isn't a Creed podcast. Uh, anything else we want to talk about with Ratatouille? We kind of did it, and then we got to the score, and then it was like, well, this is traditionally where the end of things are. Sure. Yeah. You know, one of y'all does have yeah, something I mean, we don't, on, but... we, don't, we could We could uh, just briefly talk about the vocal performance. We usually do talk about the vocal performance of it. I think this is interesting because now Pat and Oswald is like such a – 
to me, like, he's like a comedian I actually kind of follow, but still, it's one of those things where, like, Toy Story, like, I'll never hear Tom Hanks, that's Woody, you know, and this is like, oh, no, that's Remy, you know, like, I mean, he's just sure. using his speaking voice, but, yeah. I already mentioned that I really like Brad Garrett in this, I, but, and of course, but everyone else in this, I feel like, is like, yeah, they're good, you know, I don't know, it's definitely a movie where it's more like, I see the character more than I hear the voice. Well, and this is interesting, too, because Linguini and the lawyer are both played by animators, and, and I think, um, you know, more people Emil. are played by animators. But. Emil is definitely because Emil is um, Pete Sohn, who voiced also the the cat in Lightyear, mm. along with various other Pixar characters over the years. But yeah, so yeah. go on. I hate. Well, I hate to compare it to Cars always, but that's just in our lineup. That's what was on my mind. Is Cars is so tied to those celebrities. I think it's another thing about Ratatouille, which is one of the things that makes it hard to market. But yeah, Linguini sounds like, and he sounds like someone. Like it's the movie is playing. I'm like, is this a famous person? Who is this? I'm like, I know this voice, and I looked it up. Like, don't know who this is. <laughs> but like the first ten minutes, I was like, I know this guy, but I had no clue. But he has one of those voices that just sounds kind of, I guess. I'm just checking very quick what Pixar roles he has. Um, he is in Incredibles as the teacher who's like coincidence i think not uh and then he's is he any other voice actor no it looks like it might just be that actually other than linguini you know like reprising linguini for like rides places you know he's actually for for mark he is in um the boys night out short that we the stripper short that we discussed one time on this podcast yeah and that's teddy newton i didn't say his name teddy newton is the lawyer you can definitely oh, hear it. Oh yeah, you know, you know it's one of those things where hey, he's always someone who um Teddy Newton uh I think his most iconic Pixar all he's the phone in Toy Story 3 who's like you're never getting out of here kid, yes. you know, like that guy. Um so like now you mentioned the thing is to me also with this movie is John Ratzenberg even he kind of disappears in his vote cuz he's doing that French yeah, accent. Yeah, you like, can oh, tell it's him. I guess though. that's him. Yeah, and he's yeah. also mod- I feel like it's the most modeled like him like it's kind of ink suit actor uh-huh. in a way. Um, I also think, I think one thing that's interesting about this cast to me that always sticks out to me now when I look at the Ratatouille cast is Will Arnett is in this. I feel like right before he became like the celebrity voice actor and he also, he like totally disappears in the role. Who is he again? And it's like, oh yeah, Will Arnett's in it. He's, um, the chef who's like, I killed the man, this thumb. Yeah, but it's like, he's got the, he's got the accent going on. He's not really going full gravel. So it's like, yeah, but it's like, now he's like in every. I mean, he also has seven lines. So like, like, Well, he's got yeah. he's got some funny yeah, ones, in but he there, never you know? speaks more than like a <laughs> sentence at a time or two, so it's not too much to you to be like. He's never a monologue where you're like, "Oh, that's who it is." But it's also like, I guess there was this was like a point in time, I guess probably after like Arrested Development ended and it didn't have like a cult following, because it's like it's really weird to me that it is Will yeah. Arnett. But I guess like, I guess he's just not like. Well, this the is Will before Arnett he did anymore, Blades of Glory know? and before he was even in stuff like Let's Go to Prison and stuff like that. That may have been two thousand six, seven, or eight, but it was like just at Blades, the time. Blades. Yeah, these are Blades of Glory and Let's Go to Prison are right before oh, are? this, but probably not when they're, you know, like, cast, you know, but it's probably, like, the voice performance yeah, yeah. probably is way before then for this. But, yeah, um, I feel There's like he had a, in... he was on Danny Phantom? Oh, my gosh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, like, a working dude before you know him. There's some, I, one of my favorite things is I think, I think Ian Holm is a standout because I think other people are kind of playing versions of people that we're used to them seeing, at least. And then to have Ian Holm being Bilbo Baggins and then Skinner is very fun. He also has a moment of 
you talked about the infinite editability of these movies. He has a, mo a line delivery where he says they're going to shut us down, and I don't think he delivers it as begging, but they animate it as begging. So that's something you're, mm -hmm. you commented earlier. That's something that set my brain off. Is I, I don't th I think Ian Holm knows that that's a stupid line to turn around and deliver to the rest of the chefs. I feel like there's something about his dialogue that says no, he's delivering that to Linguini, the new chef. It's just mm -hmm. I have a lot of I have a lot of admiration for places he takes takes that character yeah we didn't talk about skinner enough i like in general he's great he's so fun and he's actually really funny like watching he's this very when he's so obsessed with them he's like the rat i see it it's there it's not there it's like it's a, it's pretty funny it's a pretty great performance and the animation's really good i too. also think like i was gonna say with the animation i think his design is so like more cartoony than anything else in this at least yeah. human wise you know and it, it works a lot like he looks like he and anton ego both kind of look like caricatures uh, and i think it really like adds a lot to their both their personalities. Yeah, if he was a regular size um, guy, and, and I don't think it would the, be the same character at all. It so much helps. Or like, so like he has such goofy ears, and it's just like, this is great. I love, the design is so good on him. And I also wanted to, because we're talking about voice, I want to shout out, because I think he's also the only other celebrity voice actor we didn't mention, celebrity. Not known for voice acting role. I think Brian Denton, he does a lot with Django when Django is on screen. Like, he really sells those lines. And I think, I think in a way, I think he's really the only character I can say. I think the voice does more for me than the animation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think he's the only character where it's like it's really his his performance that's coming through in that character. Um, mm -hmm. I think O'Toole too, but that's just because like P Peter O'Toole's Peter O'Toole, right? Like, and of course, like Peter O'Toole, his big speech, we don't even see his yeah. character, right? So. <laughs> But, well, he and Brian Dennehy kind of, you know, we talked about Kevin Spacey as Hopper, and I think they're kind of in that category of, like, get the guy to play their, like, character type, and it'll work really well. I think that's that's where that comes from. In a good, in a good way. I'm kind yeah. of yes. comparing them mentally to Skinner, which is a shift for me. But, yeah, I think that's it's a credit to the people at Pixar. Loved Hopper as a kid. I I I don't know when I think of Brian Dennehy, I just think of the South Park, the joke from the South Park movie where they're singing about Brian Boitano, and he just walks in, he's like, "Hi, I'm Brian Dennehy," and they're like, "What? What? What are you doing here?" <laughs> um, all right. Um, so how would you say this contributes to our conception of the studio Pixar? I think it's some. It 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 shows like how crazy they're willing to go with their stories. Like the fact that this is a kids movie that is I say kids movie, but, you know, like this would be viewed as a kids movie uh, that's about the relationship of art and criticism and like how you hard it is to achieve and like succeed in places where you might not be wanted. Like this is like dealing with some really heady stuff, but it's still really mm -hmm. funny. It's still like so creative. Um. I think it's. I think there's a reason this is like. I remember when they announced the Wally Criterion, a lot of people were mad about. It. I'm like, you know, no, I think Ratatouille should get one too. <laughs> you know, like that was sure. my whole. I think. I think. I think Ratatouille like completely belongs in that collection of like highbrow movies. It's like, I think this is one of Pixar's like, in a way, it's like 
I think Wally gets more discussion, but this is like one of their prime. I would say this is almost like more filmy prime. than Wally. Wally in the beginning, but then Wally becomes almost more of a kids movie. I think in the in the in the second yeah, half I think, than this movie does. Maybe in, in, they're all kids movies. You know what I, I mean, call like, I guess. No, no, I go. I, I think I think we. I didn't never say this because I don't. I, and it would come up down the road. But I think this is like a trilogy of sorts. And this is the beginning of. I was going to bring that up like, too, actually. Stars, like highs. yeah, because I think it also has and to do with the fact that them, they got bought. Like these films, like we're saying, were in development before. And I think at first Disney knew that they had a new relationship to, to cater and they couldn't step Story on their 3. toes too much. And I think the, that everyone was uninvolved. I think it took a little while, a couple of movies for Disney to get their toes in. I think at first they made a movie without them. Then, then one executive got in the two. And then by the time the new decade came along, they were just another property Disney owned and it was starting to become what it is now. Yeah. Where I think it says a lot than thinking about that going off Toy Story. No, sorry. Going off of Ratatouille. Wally and up that the next three are Toy Story three, which is good, but it's a sequel. Cars two, and then a princess movie. Yeah. Right? Like <laughs> we need a Toy Story three because um, they're like, biggest franchise. Like, Cars is our biggest merchandise seller, and we need to sell. And we don't make enough movies for girls, so make a princess movie. We, right? Like that was like you could see those are three exactly. main motives of the studio would say first. But I also think it's interesting the way you just said it is that like I do think they gradually get more and more like we have jokes in here for kids because obviously like Wally gets it. Wally, I do think, still is pretty like has its mind high, like, in, but it does have a lot of comic relief in that back half that I don't think this, I think the jokes in here are very, like, implemented in the story entirely, like, it's not like, oh, we cut to a meal for something funny, and then when Up comes along, even though Up is still, like, a very, like, good movie, it's like, oh, we have these talking dogs that are making jokes, and they're, now they're flying planes, and it's funny jokes yeah. with the dogs, and then it's like, and that's a, that's a big complaint, like, people who don't like Up talk about it, like, and I, I like I Up, love Up, but, but my least favorite part is, but, yeah. is the ending. So, yeah, I would agree. I think these gradually become less. Because, again, I said Ratatouille belongs in the Criterion Collection. I wouldn't say Up does. No. <laughs> like, personally, yeah, I wouldn't say Up does. Um, but, yeah. What would, would you guys have anything else to say about, like, how you think this would contribute to, like, Pixar's, like, legacy? Or, you know? Well, it's hard no. to look forward like you have because I'm kind of rewatching these a little more blind than you are. I think I, my perception now is. You know, that's another support for Pixar as an auteur studio and that sort of thing. That's kind of my big takeaway from Ratatouille. I don't think I, that it's, you know, I'm starting to get things like what you've been telling me about oh, everything Pixar is like a body comedy and that sort of thing. So patterns are emerging for me, well, but this has such an, I would never, thing. I never, I never complained about it, but this has like one of the more like tropey second act break. You mentioned it, so that's why I didn't get into it. But I, this is like one of the things I immediately think of when they're like, oh, they break up at the end of the second act. I think definitely Ratatouille because it's just very like, oh, we're here. They're breaking up because we got to have it to get us to like the third act. Um, yeah. But because Linguini just kind of like is a Linguini like getting it to his head happens so quickly. It's like, all right, but it, it's fine. You know what? It, it, it's what you were saying also earlier with like, the seams are showing a little bit and that's okay. Um, but what I also actually wanted to push back on a bit, even though I know this is like us being to wrap up, is I, I have this thing where I say Pixar is one of the more auteurie studios of any animation, at least in America. Because I think the Pete Doctor movies feel very different from the Andrew Stanton movies, feel very different from the Brad Bird movies, feel very different than the John Laster movies to me. Um, but in a way, when I'm watching this, I also do think it does feel like there was someone else's hand in this. Because I think you compare this to Incredibles and Iron Man, and uh, Iron Man, Iron Giant, uh, I do think this feels very... I think it feels a lot gentler than either of them do, even though there's a lot of, like, you know, he's a jerk, but it's also, like, it's much more, like, it's willing to slow down mm -hmm. and really relax. But I do think, yeah, the Brad Bird stuff does shine through, too. 
I do wonder how you guys rank this in your Pixar series, more or less, or like how high up do you put this on your, you know, Pixar scale? This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, even though we're about a third of the way through our, I mean, we're probably a sixth of the way through our journey. Uh, it's probably pretty high for me. We'll see if it's like top five or something like that. Because I think comparing the films to each other, it's actually a little lower than some other films. I feel like Finding Nemo is really going to be fighting for that top spot at the end of this project. But personally, Ratatouille is a film that I felt like I, watching this, I was like, I could watch this every day. Mm -hmm. It was incredible and terrifying. What I will say right now, of what we've covered so far on my personal list, it looks like this comes in at... Because I'm removing Inside on Coco because I haven't rewatched them recently and, like, whatever. So, to me, this only comes in behind Toy Story 2 so far of what we watched. I think this is really great. Yeah. Um, really phenomenal work. So, up until this point, I would say, I guess this is the best Pixar original movie. Yeah. <laughs> Toy Story 2 is the only one that's better than it. Um... Can I ask you, Jay, in the five films that you suggested when you wanted to come on here, how does this rank among those? Um, you know, my Pixarness is kind of like, I have to rewatch them all again from the start, but in general, I'm a Toy Storyist. So I'm like, I think Toy Story mm -hmm. 1 and 3 are the best movies by far. I think those are, the, those are my two five-star Pixar movies. And then there's like a next tier, which is what I haven't decided. And that's a, that, that tier is pretty big. It's also great, but it's basically like, Monsters Inc., Incredibles, Ratatouille, Coco's the new one on that. And I don't know how I would rank those follow ups. And Toy Story 2 is also there. So there's like basically the top two. I have to rewatch the Toy Stories again, too. It's been a while. So I need to rewatch Toy Story 3. But well, you got to get ready yeah. for five. Oh. <laughs> so it's like those, there's kind of five <laughs> spots fighting for the top three and they're tied. Like they're all so close. Even like a hair under that, like I have Finding Nemo, like. The smidges below those five, and that's just because when I rewatch, I don't know, but I won't talk too specifically about that. But they're all so close. Like that's the thing. Like everything up until Toy Story three. Like honestly, so that's why it's hard for me to compare. Cause like I got, I watched them all growing up, and I liked them all. And as I got older, they pretty much stayed the same quality in themselves. That it's hard for me to pick what they are. But I have a feeling, like maybe Coco is. It's, uh, I have to rewatch them all and over, but I've only seen Coco like twice, and I've seen the these Coco, movies like eight, Coco nine, ten, like, twelve times. So it's hard. Yeah, that's the thing with Coco. It's like it's so to me. It's like it's so obviously great, but it's also like I grew up with all these other ones, so it's so hard for me to be like this is definitely yeah. better than everything I grew up with. Because but then it's also like well, the things I grew up with I have a nostalgia mm -hmm. for. So the fact that this is competing with it is exactly like, like must mean it's yeah, really yeah. good. <laughs> like, um, yeah. All right, so Mark, you want to do our last thing we do before? Because we got to wrap it up. Yes, really quick, we'll wrap it up. Um, Jay, we like to do something here. A lot of film critics give films things like star reviews or things like that. We like to physically give the film something. It's maybe not a physical object. Maybe it's like an event or you like to create some circumstance in your head or maybe it's a performance. I don't know. Whatever you want to give the film. What did you, so what we did you usually give go and first. We like to start like that. Because, the, yeah. So you, you can get, get, yeah, get, yeah, get a vibe. Because it's, kind of, it's kind of weird. Do you yeah. have something, well, Mark? Because I, uh, I have yeah, some. I mean, I could give this film a lot of things. I loved it. Um, I'm gonna give it some. I'm gonna give it some crinkly bread. You know, I, we never talked about that, but I think that is the actually the longest impact this movie's had on me. Where whenever I go to like Panera, I will like crinkle the bread before I eat it. Like you know, like hear that crunch, be like, it's fresh. Um, but you know, I'm gonna give it something a little 
stronger. No offense, Mark. I think that was a very good thing to give it. I mean, here's, but, here's uh, my thing. No, I'm saying, no, no, it is a good I thing, but you're, this, you're like giving it to this something. this film was so influential, I want to reward it with something that was like, like you said, this is part of our lives now, and movies are referencing Rakakuni and things like that. That's why I gave it to it. Well, I'm going to give it, although I guess Rakakuni is like its legacy, but it will have more. I'm giving it the biggest legacy I can give it, okay? As time has gone on, print media has been dying out more and more. So I would like the final issue of USA Today, even though I guess it's a French credit, so this makes much sense, but screw it, I'm going for it. The final print issue of USA Today, whenever that may happen, be it 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, in the culture section, we will print Anton Ego's review of Gusto's. That is what I'm giving. Get that that prime spot in the final print issue of USA Today. Well, that is a good gift. Yours was nice and dramatic. <laughs> I know. Well, I was gonna say like that's why I say like mine is so big, and you're giving it bread, which I think is nice too. This is in a completely different direction. Well, the gift I thought of, I feel like it's kind of a bad gift. I feel like it's a gift that might lead to our death. Like okay. when when <laughs> aliens say. come and they ask for our culture, the gift I'm gonna give them and this movie is the first thing that aliens should taste from our land is a nicely prepared dish of ratatouille. Oh no, that's nice. I like that. And they can spit I it like out because disgusting vegetables, and then they'll blow us up. That's <laughs> <laughs> well. This was fantastic. Yeah, I, this is a good one. We're, yeah, we're keeping you for a while. But Jay, do you want to plug yourself again before you leave? Yes. First up, I'll say. Love to come back. Love being on shows. Love being on podcasts. If I didn't have prior uh, plans, I would be down to talk for another two hours. So apologies, but I will literally come on anytime asked. But the final plug again, one last time for the 12, 13 listeners. Don't know what you guys got, but I would just one of you. If, <laughs> if you watch Northwood Pie, it would mean a lot. Tweet me, text me, let me know. If not, it's cool. But yeah, it just makes my day to know at least one person's watching it. That's really all I can say for a movie this small. I haven't made any money off of it. Every time I see that someone's watching it, I go, wow, eh, I guess it was worth it. And then I continue to make my top ramen or macaroni and cheese and, and live my yeah. broken hand, homeless life. I watched it, and I hope that you get that Jeff Bezos penny. Thank you. Well, you so Okay, well, then I have to say, if you wouldn't mind, please leave a review on Amazon. My last review was like a year and a half ago. The problem with these reviews is that you have to leave the reviews on the website. You can't leave it from your TV. So, like, people watch on their TV, and there's no way to leave a review. Oh, yeah. So, for the algorithm's sake, I have 62. If you give me my 63rd, then every movie with 62 is now below me. That's my ask. I sure. will not do that. I need... <laughs> I, I need... No, no, no. I need six more people to watch and review Northwood Pie. I refuse not to leave the 69th review when we're so close. Well, you can make some fake accounts. Do what you got to do. <laughs> the review bomb. Review bomb. Realistic review bomb. Do four stars. You know, a couple four, four and a half. You know, I've got to make it honest here. Well, I'll probably review it tomorrow, so you all have that much time. Okay. From when we recorded this. So, <laughs> so the listening, this episode will come out after Marcus. <laughs> okay. Um, do you want to do you want to tell people where they can follow you on Twitter, Instagram, or you don't? You can just find me at Jay Salahi, J A Y S A L A H I, anywhere. The good thing about my name or bad thing is that if you Google me, it's me. Like it literally just says pictures of me. It's my Twitter. You can find North of Pie. Someone, so, yeah, not a lot of famous Salahis. Someone has been using except for the people who crashed the someone wedding with been... Obama. That's always talks about. Uh, someone, um, sorry, just very quickly, and then we will let you go. Someone's been using my VisionWorks account apparently in Georgia, and I called them up about it, and I'm like, 
Yo, I, I don't live in Georgia. I don't know why you're giving me updates on there. Because I'm not, my credit card's not on there. So it's okay. not like I'm being charged for these glasses. But I'm just like, uh, you might want to like send these emails to whoever this is. And they're like, oh, don't worry, we'll fix it. And then I got like an email like earlier this morning saying, your order is in. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. There's like, some Danny Vincent who's forgetting like... to pick up his glasses because of you. <laughs> yeah, well, I called him and let him know. They didn't fix it, so what is? Um, Yeah, the, thank you again, Jay, for having you on. You're always a great guest. And I'm sure, even though I said, like, we're only going to have people on once at the beginning of this podcast, I'm sure I will get you back. All you got to do is ask. That's all. I mean, I I'm that close anything. away. Just, yeah. say, just say when and I'll yeah. be there. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right. What are we doing next time? Uh, next time we will be continuing with our feature, our summer of 2007 series, when we take a detour, um, because David Silverman. I should have this open. Always, I never do. Uh, but David Silverman co-directed Toy Story 2 and went on to make his feature directing film on the Simpsons movie. So we will be doing an episode on the Simpsons movie, which is interesting because I have never seen it. I did not grow up with the Simpsons. Uh, so it's gonna be fun time with the Simpsons, but I'm like, I have no cultural memory of this thing other than it's the show that was on after Mouth in the Middle that my mom did not let me watch. Uh, so, yeah. Jay, thanks again for coming on. Of you course. Were Simpsons movie is solid. Yes. It listed in my memory from seeing oh. it five years ago. The Simpsons movie is solid, everyone. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll I haven't seen the Simpsons show, so maybe I'm completely just an ignorant man. Wow. So. Oh. Looking for the Ocean is produced by Mark Young and Danny Vincent. Our original artwork was done by Sarah Knopf, and each episode is edited by me. If you'd like to be notified about new episodes, you can find us on Facebook at Looking for the Ocean of Pixar Journey, on Twitter at Pixar Journey, on Instagram at Looking for the Ocean Pod, and on our website, lookingforTheOceanPixar.podbean.com. If you want to know what I'm up to or find me on social media, you can head over to MarkYoungPerformer.com. If you'd like to see all my takes on all the movies, you can find me on Letterboxd at Blankman's. If you'd like to hear me on another podcast, I also have The Snub Club, a podcast about film history. We'll see you next time. See you next time.